Tonight's film deals with the supernatural as a possessed man attempts to destroy his family. Although edited for television, it may not be suitable for young viewers. Parental discretion is advised. Tonight, an ABC premiere presentation. Jack Nicholson. Shelley Juval. The ultimate exercise in terror. Anybody here? A masterpiece of modern horror. The Shining. Here's Johnny. I pushed. I pushed. And, you, you're, and then you were like. <laughs> <laughs> so I um I went to bed early last night to try to be ready for this, and uh, it's one of those situations where you uh you know you say I'm going to bed early, I'm gonna try to get a good night's sleep, and then you're just wide awake the into, you know, six hours. You're there just turning and crawling. And then uh, the window was open, and and these people across the street down the road were having a big par- house party because it was a Friday night, and it's like you know, uh, Blake and I both used to attend parties back in the day, but now being my age, it's like Jesus Christ, it's one thirty in the morning. I got kids. Sweet- <laughs> yeah, you're, you're 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 playing beer pong in the backyard. It's like you know, you're realizing how much of idiots these people are. So, you know. I was like, come on, you sons of bitch. So I think somebody eventually called the cops. I'm not saying I did it, <laughs> but, uh, man, so I had no sleep last night. I get all mad. You know, you get mad at yourself, and then, you're looking at the, then you don't want to look at the clock. You got your eyes closed, and you're sitting there like, I'm not going to look at the clock. Then I looked, and it was 2 o'clock already, and I was like, Jesus. Like, I have a sleepover tomorrow. <laughs> I need it. I need my energy. I need my sleep. I need my rest because I'm not getting it tomorrow. Don't you understand? It's getting mad at everybody. Don't you talk to me? So we're here. It's October. It is it's that time of the year again. I know it's been starting at like late September and then early, you know, early October, first week of October. I was like, oh, man, it's it's New York Comic Con season. It feels like New York Comic Con, but yet I guess they're doing it virtually. But it's I got depressed what? that I couldn't walk over to New York Comic. <laughs> What's it usually the end of September? It, it depends. It's usually like end of September into early to mid October. Depends on the year. But it just felt oh, we were like gonna it. Try you to know do how like you know year. how like the light changes. You know, when yeah. autumn comes around, and it was just like there's a little was brisk in the air, and the light was just right. I was like, man, I should be waiting in line for Comic Con right now, but. It didn't happen. You, you. I've never gone. You go, right? You said you've been to there was quite a, a few, right? Yeah, there was a there was like a year or two there where I didn't go. It just got so big, and I the, the <laughs> there was one year I literally had like a panic attack inside. There were so many people, and I <laughs> just got really freaked out. Never again. And so I took a year or two off after that, but then I went last year. And, uh, I don't know. 
That's fun. I but guess. this reminds you of the season, I guess, because it's been going. Yeah. You've been going. When was the first one you went to? What year was the first? Oh, I don't know. You know, I don't. I don't know what year it is. Let yeah. <laughs> it was. It was a long time ago, right? It was yeah. like ten years ago, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was probably about ten years ago. And then, uh, and then when I worked on Comic Book Men, we got like early passes to go to it. Uh, so everybody would take turns leaving work. Although I just was like, this could be like the last shift because we only had like x amount of passes so people yeah. would leave work for like two hours and come back i was like just give me the left shift and then i'll bring my pass in in the morning because it's it's in my neighborhood javits center is like in my neighborhood so i was like that way i can just come home afterwards i don't have to go back to work uh so we got to go early then but uh which was cool because then there was like almost nobody there <laughs> Well, and then there was like a regular convention at that point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And now it's, but uh, yeah, I refuse to go. And I also just because, can't. also because I live near it. You know, you when oh yeah, when, sure. When you when it comes around, there's like all these cosplayers walking around the neighborhood trying to get to it. And stuff. Yeah, it's in the air. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I think it's just it's overwhelming. I I like to go to the one you and I go to, the mercantile one, or I like those smaller. Give, I'll take a Knights of a Columbus any day. <laughs> going in the basement. <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, there's a certain charm. And some card, and some some card tables, you know, and, and that smell of musk and mildew. Yeah, there's so uh, there's a certain there's a certain convention smell that is like, that charm. It's like <laughs> bo farts. Yeah, so, someone's carpet bombing. <laughs> Especially because like all the vendors yeah. they. They just run out to get something quick to eat, so it's always like Chinese food, like cheap yeah. Chinese food takeout. So there's a the convention smell is like a combination of bo and farts, and then like you know dust and old books smell. Yeah, <laughs> and then if somebody somebody goes by that maybe usually sometimes if it's a woman and you know there's a nice smell, suddenly you get a whiff of something. You're like, <laughs> what? The? Salvation. And then, then you're back. Yeah, and then you're back to like you know freaking old stale beer from the night before at this. You know, so those the and but those are like this. It's it's a story I've told many times, but that goes back to like when I was really little when you and I used to go to those Halloween parties, not together, but you know, uh, your one in Philly when you your mom didn't your grandmother dress you up for Spider Man with the black suit or whatever? Yeah, black suited Spider Man. The uh, yeah. It, I was like, I don't know. It was like a convention center or a gymnasium somewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's what. So when I think of those places, I think about when I was little too, little St. Michael's, and I was in Catholic school. I went one year, and I was GI Joe. So it's. The, I think we've talked about this before, but it's the plastic mask and just the garbage garbage bag, yeah. you know, um, schmuck, outfit schmuck. uniform. <laughs> yeah, schmock, highly flammable. So it's like you know. Those are all those. When, when I go down to those things, it's either like, or it's wintertime. It's craft fairs. Going, my mom's dragging me to like, you know, craft fairs at church basements, you know. So I'm looking at all these people who made their own stuff or brownies and baking. So lacing, uh, just at Comic Con, it's just lacing their baking goods with <laughs> LSD. <laughs> <laughs> you never know, right? I mean, some person could be. Who knows what the hell people are doing, especially nowadays. So, so maybe one day I'll make it to the old Comic Con, but it's got that time in the air, isn't it? The the, the leaves are all drying and getting red and yeah. getting ready to fall off. And uh, well, this is like and, the best, uh, easily the best part of uh, the Northeast is like this mm. t- two months. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> out of twelve, foliage. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's really nice now. The look and all that. Yeah. That's why I like going up to my parents' house, driving on the Merritt Parkway in Connecticut there. It's it's uh, like the Autobahn. It's in the beautiful foliage. It's really nice. Uh, but speaking of foliage, we're doing Halloween movies now. We're, we're in the ho- month of Halloween. Uh, and we, we, got a movie this, we got a movie this month for you. And then we have a second movie also that's coming out that's going to be on the, uh, the Patreon. Yes. Correct? So if you're not a Patreon member... A patron, you have missed our John Carpenter's The Fog extravaganza. Boy, that was a fun one. Where Dion you know. and I dressed up like uh, the Blake's uh, pirates. <laughs> well, Dion dressed up like Hal Holbrook. <laughs> like Hal Holbrook. <laughs> And I took my mom's uh, the night before I baked. Uh, I took her baking sheet and I made this huge, huge thing that could be the gold chocolate. You know, that's going to be my cross. You know, and then Blake was able to be the pirate, and we took cosplayed it. It's it's very in depth. And then we got it. Then we used all. We turned all the lights in the basement on, so much so that then the then the gold would melt. You know, the chocolate <laughs> cross, and, you know, which was chocolate. You see, so it was really involved. You know, we really got into it. So we got into it Muppet Baby style. So that was our uh, that was our first Patreon exclusive episode, and since we're talking about Patreon, of course, uh, we have a very low uh, asking price. I don't know what to call it. Subscription fee. Hey, if- welcome to Mo- Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. By the way, I'm Jay Blake, and this is Dion Bayer. and. Uh, we're talking answer. about Patreon. We're talking about baby. We're talking about <laughs> Patreon. So you can just, do it too, baby. So for just three dollars a month, you can get uh, exclusive content whenever we have time to yes. dish it up. But uh, we'd want to give a shout out to our first Patreon members. Uh, we were with with the fog episode. We had uh, quite a few join uh, comparatively. To what we what so we, ro- what we were dealing with for, for September, but uh, we're doing the old roll call. So a special thanks goes out to Carl Grant, Jimmy White, Jose Rivera, Kurt Harper, Jonathan Kucha Gucha, G U C A. Sorry, Jonathan. Kyle Schuld, Damian McPherson, A J Albright, Mark Plessel. Nick dun, Gadman, dun, Roger Stano, come on down, dun, 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 dun. Jacob dun, Garcia, dun, dun, dun. Kevin, dun, 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 dun. <laughs> <laughs> the kids are screaming, <laughs> Muddleweight, whatever, that's, that's dun, his dun, nickname, dun, dun, dun. Muddleweight. Steve Katchuk, Steve Katchuk, come on down, dun, 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 dun. and Brett, Brett Foxtrot. Brett Foxtrot. Dun, 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 dun. Come on down. You are our first contestants on the Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers Patreon Extravaganza. Dun, 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 dun. But, uh, oh, that's exciting. Anyway, so thank you so much for our uh, first patrons. And, uh, for and then we have gold members, don't we? You said we have. We have who are we the have gold special members? Gold, we have special gold members that decide to <laughs> reach into their pocket just a little bit more. So Jimmy White... Uh, Kyle Schuld and uh, Damian McPherson. 
They're the gold members, baby. You get an extra pat on the back. And for anyone who decided to uh, visit our merch store and purchase a t-shirt, Saturday Night Movies Sleepovers t-shirt, which also on the show, on the... uh, on our merchandising store, you can find your official Saturday Night Movie Sleepover sleepover gear. Nice. The pillow and blanket. Yes, for your sleepover. For any sleepover you may be attending or hosting. Um, and then there's a special limited edition, right? Oh, uh, we have a Halloween limited edition shirt. So up until the end of October, there's an orange variant of the, tele- of the uh, television shirt of the... <laughs> Of the of the Saturday Night Movie Sleepover shirt. The Halloween orange. Yeah, you should get those now because those are going to be as rare as those... Um, uh, what's the name of that company that does all the posters? For <laughs> Yeah, uh, Mondo. Yeah, they're going to be as exclusive as Mondo, baby. Well, they won't be back till maybe next Halloween. Yeah, or September. <laughs> so. Yeah. Anyway, well, thank you, everybody. Thank you, guys, for 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 being members and being part of our little uh, uh, Saturday night's movie sleepover musketeer as musketeer uh, club. As Lance Henriksen would say, "Your tribe, yeah, you're part of the tribe." So um, that's really exciting. Thank you very much. So that's so. If you are members, you get access to the fog and uh, whatever else we'll be putting out in the near future. And uh, but tonight we're not doing the fog. This is. This is the other one we're doing. The other <laughs> the Halloween other extravaganza. <laughs> the uh, other one. I have to say that this was a uh this was a good one. I feel like the uh tonight we're covering Poltergeist way back from nineteen eighty two, arguably the best year for movies. And uh Rivals the summer of eighty four. I have to say that as much as like everybody loves Poltergeist, it's uh un- it's underappreciated or it's you know it's maybe that's not the word. Maybe it's I want to say it's uh I th- I think people take it for granted. Let me just put it that way. You know, like I I believe it's underrated, but it's it's not that it's underrated. I think people just have taken for granted that it exists because you never really see anybody, even horror fans, talk about it. Everybody wants to talk about the more, the rarer stuff or the more gory stuff. And uh, this piece of uh, cinema is kind of a uh, it's a it's a gem. It's a, it's not such a hidden gem. It's in plain sight, but nobody's looking at it, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, I think it ties in perfectly to what we've been doing. Actually, too, we covered the Changeling this year as well, and you know, it's 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 it fits into the, the, to to a lot of our greater conversations as they always do. But I I completely agree with you that people seem to um, you know, this doesn't make those lists, I guess, as the uh, blockbusters and stuff like that. Um, yeah, especially with social media these days, it seems like people are more. Uh, geared towards contemporary stuff, which is completely understandable, but, you know, or Fulci or Argento or Carpenter in the last few years has had a lot of love because of his resurgence with the music. And um, when people think of Toby Hooper, they don't necessarily think of Poltergeist right away. Obviously, they think of something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre or Funhouse. 
Uh, so I just feel like this one just gets short shrift in a weird way. Because it's also a movie that whenever you bring it up, everybody's like, oh, yeah, Poltergeist. <laughs> but just, oh, yeah. They never really th- think to mention it in uh, in horror movie discussions very often. Do you remember the first time that you saw Poltergeist? Oh, geez. It's it's one of those movies that that's I've always had with me. Yeah, and me it's too. weird because it, it's PG. You know, they... they they had an R, and then they 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 cut it down to a PG or tamed it down for us to be able to watch it. So that said, our parents and we were a little like, "Screw it, they can see it because it's PG." So I saw it probably <laughs> <laughs> as young. I was, you know, I I don't remember a time not seeing it. It was back the thing, this Christine. It's a whole handful of these horror movies that I remember from way back in the day, and this is one of them. And uh, um. I hadn't seen the movie for at least 30 years. I mean, I know I know it well enough. Uh, the only part I kind of forgot a little bit were the scenes with the entity or the, the poltergeist coming down the stairs and the, that, that, that scene that forgot. I, that was a little cloudy. Um, but no, it's always been with me and I've always known it pretty well. So it was, it was really interesting coming back and seeing it this time around because it, it, uh, it was, it was exciting. It was very exciting and thrillful that you know to see it uh this way uh with so much time passing and then putting it into context of everything else going on at the time and uh um how about you do you remember when you first saw it not you know kind of not really i i I don't think it was at the movies although i wouldn't be surprised if it was (laughs) which would have made me like four yeah um I have a, re- a weird recollection of like the aftermath of seeing it, which makes me think it was really early, or we rented it when it first came out on videotape, uh, which would have been, probably been like 83. Uh, I asked my brother if he remembers seeing it, because I have a recollection. When we lived at that point, at that time in the early 80s, my dad, he lived in a house, and my brother and I shared a room in that house when we visited on weekends. And I have a recollection of watching it. And then that night, my brother, like waking up screaming in bed. Um, But I asked my brother and my brother said that he saw it at the movies down the shore with our cousin, Teresa, who was, who, who was older than us. And she would, you know, my grandmother owned a motel in Wildwood, New Jersey in our youth. And so I was too little, but my brother who was also too little, but back then you could leave a, let's see, he was probably nine, a nine year old by himself for the summer <laughs> with, hotel. with some old people that were a running motel. a hotel and couldn't <laughs> running a motel and couldn't watch a kid. They were busy. Yeah. Uh, so my brother would go down and spend like, you know, a large chunk of the summer uh, either in Wildwood or our grandfather, who was a performer, would be performing in Atlantic City. So it was either he was in Wildwood or Atlantic City staying with my, my grandfather. Um, and so he said that he saw it with Teresa, who wanted to go see it, who I don't know how much older she is. She's certainly, you know, older than me and she's older than my brother. But so they she dragged him to go see it. He must have been like eight or nine. Uh, my brother's not a big horror movie fan because I think he had a lot of these traumatic experiences at a young age. And instead of 
embracing them the way uh, I have. <laughs> it's made him fearful. Uh, but that that means he might have seen it in theaters. But then we might have watched it with my dad when it came out on video, and he could have it could have triggered a P- PTSD in him. Uh, so my recollection is that he screamed the night we watched it. But uh, I could be wrong. It turns out probably a lot of the stuff I remember from th- those years are incorrect because I asked my brother, and he's like, "Yeah, no, that didn't happen." Or yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so. I, I do, but it is one of those movies that kind of I, I've always, I don't remember not having seen it. There's a popular- I think it was so big, right? It was yeah. just because like E.T., those movies are just so, I mean, my I think my I've narrowed it down. My earliest memory of going to the movies, to the cinema, was to see E.T. and then crying on the way home. My dad being like, he survived. It's okay. The alien is fine. Yeah. And me not understanding that. And then I remember us going to try to see Peter Pan, and then Peter Pan was, it was so crowded that it was full. So we went up to like the little drive in our, we were all in our station wagon with the next, with the, the cousins and cars were leaving and then we realized we couldn't like it was so packed that the parking lot was full you know yeah. we had to get out and we're like we can't even go in we're not going to, i was like we're not going to see we're going to see peter pan i thought and that was really early memory so this is all around that time you know so i feel like it was all there yeah there's a popular question that like goes around on twitter and horror movie groups on facebook where people ask you know, what was the first horror movie you ever saw? And I'm always shocked that people have answers because I have no idea. It was either, like, to me, it was either <clears throat> The Thing, The Shining, Poltergeist. It's probably one of those three. And because I was, I was too young to remember it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the vaguest of recollections of, of them all. So I don't know which one was first, but I feel like they were all around the same time. Like I, we we did the the changeling this year, and I have a really early memory of seeing that wheelchair in the in the attic at a really young age, and then you know the outside of the mansion or something. And I've always, I didn't know the movie until maybe you and I were in college, and we sort of, oh, that's the changeling, and then you know we figured out what movie that was. Um, but there are a bunch of horror movies from that era, and then I remember very young too seeing like In Search of on television with Leonard yeah. Nimoy, you know. So there's a lot of like memories that are tied together. Because of things, um, I can't think. The Shining was also, like you said, very early on. Um, the Last Man on Earth, the Vincent Price movie from Thriller, was huge when I was, you know, this is ta- Halloween stuff. So, um, yeah, it's just, especially this being a PG movie in the early '80s, I feel like uh, it's a little sleight of hand, slightly, and um, you know, probably our parents back because back then PG you can get boobs in PG, you know, so it's like. You think about what the what the uh, I mean, and in England, this was um, I forget what the what the rating system is, but it's fifteen, so no one under sixteen or so could see the movie. You know, it was rated that high; you couldn't go to the theater or something like that. And uh, they didn't have PG thirteen yet in the states, so that's why this just got PG. So I feel like this probably would have got a PG thirteen if there was a PG thirteen. Um, available at that time. So because of that, we all saw it. You know, yeah, our parents yeah. were like, oh, it's going to be great. You know, we can take the kids. <laughs> Spielberg you know, produced it. Yeah. And then there's, you know, there's faces coming. I mean, that's there's a couple lines in the movie, but there's a couple shots where the guy takes his face off that yeah. scared the shit out of me when I was that young. Apparently, so. uh, allegedly, it got an R rating and then they contested it. Yeah, yeah. And, and they yeah. ended up winning and then got PG, but like Dion said, had there been a PG-13 at the time, 
it almost certainly would have gotten a PG-13 rating. Yeah. I mean, I could see why they were going. For, I mean, I guess R is a little extreme, but at the same time, it does have some messed up things in it that, you know, it's interesting. shouldn't be bringing their kids to. It's interesting that this movie comes out like the same weekend or the same month of E.T., within weeks of each other. Yeah, within a week of each other. Yeah. Um, because it polar is... Polar opposites. Yeah, it is like this total polar opposites of the what becomes the Spielbergian view of suburbia. <laughs> you know, yeah. I think we all kind of, you know, at least for me, you know, we, when we think of this period of time, there's this very, like I said, Spielbergian view of what um, suburbia is like. And, but he really doesn't spend a whole lot of time in suburbia. I mean, it's like this, uh, E.T., I I, get, I can't remember where they live in Close Encounters. I mean, I know it's a house. Um, I think it's a suburbia kind I, of I a mean, neighborhood. I, I guess more of the stuff he produces, like things like Gremlins, Goonies, which is more like small townish, yeah, um, Middle America, yeah, but uh, like Norman Rockwell. These are th- this in ET for me are very much California. I mean, even though ET is. Well, maybe uh, he grew up in Arizona, right? Or he grew up in Jersey, and then he grew up in, I think, Arizona. And uh, for me, this is this and ET are very California, you know, like with the suburbia that, like the seventies suburbia, sixties, yeah. where everything looks the same for miles and miles, almost like Edward Scissorhands' suburbia, yeah. that kind of a look. You know, kids on bikes, everything is kind of new, you know, um, slightly. Um, uh, but these are on the both ends of the spectrum for Spielberg because there's a uh, good Spielberg uh, book um, called Spielberg: The Man, the uh, the Movies, and the Mythology by Frank uh, Sinello from 1996, and he talks about how um, they called this the Summer of Spielberg, uh, and uh, these movies mark a counterpoint between his idea of of suburbia, where you know E.T. expresses the hope. While this movie kind of shows the primordial fears that uh, Spielberg is kind of showing at the time of the two different extremes of of suburbia um, and how he feels. I also feel that uh, suburbia in horror in 1982 is still somewhat new in a weird way. I mean, if you look about, if you look at, I always feel like Halloween, one of the things that I think gets overlooked about Halloween, which came out in 1978 on Carpenter's Halloween, is that it takes horror into suburbia, which is where like the majority of America was kind of living <laughs> at that time. I mean, before that, sure, I mean, you could say the, I mean, the Exorcist is like in Georgetown, which isn't, you know, it's a little different. The, but other than that, I mean, you got like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Hills Have Eyes. Um, I no, guess Dawn of the Dead takes you to a mall. Yeah, you know, Dawn of the Dead. Of, we're night, making it there on the road trip, but that's the same year. You know, Night of the Living Dead's like a farmhouse out, like in the in the sticks. Uh, I guess uh, Last House on the Left does it, which comes which comes out before. But uh, this idea of you know thinking before Psycho and even in much in the '60s, most of horror was still kind of like this gothic because of the success of like the movies that Corman was making, still like this gothic thing. And it wasn't until 
the 70s when it started to kind of update it, bring it into contemporary worlds uh, in general. Obviously, there's exceptions to the rules. But I feel like the thing that really struck a chord with viewers with Halloween was that it was like the suburban neighborhood and captures suburbia in a very dark light and that like she's running around she's like somebody help somebody help yeah. <laughs> and people are just well, like, shut, for- shutting off their lights well that, that's a true thing that, I mean that was we talked about there was an event in Queens where a girl was raped and murdered and the rumor was that she was screaming and yelling it's a very very famous case and people didn't go out and help her and it's kind of like that collective you see that play out in that movies like uh, High Plains Drifter where the collective guilt of the of the town because they're not all standing individually standing up they all go hide and for me like halloween represents like east coast like more east coast to to, to middle america suburb where these movies the spielberg movies are like west coast suburbia you know where it's like it looks like you know it's like i said it has that look of you know huge huge like you know no mountains in sight except on the far ranges you know everything's kind of flat and or or hilly you know yeah. and and it it has that look of everything looks the same where you know halloween and those movies or christine or they to me kind of look more like uh northeast or east or or, or you know mid mid country like chicago ohio with the trees and the yeah. foliage and the bushes and stuff so there's a distinction for me with the with these movies of suburbia and i don't know if we were talking about film noir last week and it wasn't until the end of the era of film noir that people kind of coined it uh i might be wrong and probably and usually am but i don't know if people even looked at suburbia until the late 70s or 80s oh this is what we would call suburbia i mean people knew what it was but in the collective psyche of you know the idea of people moving out of the cities and expanding and making new houses after the war with families um you know, you look back on that, the 60s into the 70s, and then with this in the early 80s here, um, the, 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 what America, the, the collectiveness that we were all living in like that, it's, it's just extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also like, I mean, Amityville horror, that movie had come out. But even like The Changeling, which is like 80-ish. 80. 80-ish. Uh, yeah. You know, that's a big, you know, like scary house. <laughs> yeah. So the idea of putting a horror movie, a haunted, some kind of supernatural horror movie in like a cookie cutter house in a suburban neighborhood where every house is kind of the same. It's new. You know, the house is only a couple of years old. I feel like it was attacking, you know, the audience, you know, at home, really. Yeah, it's a place that they've they're familiar with where it's kind of like the the haunting the shining uh and your big those kind of movies are always in a big mansion on the hill secluded away in the farmhouse or whatever yeah. where we're starting to bring it into the you know and then you get at the end of the 80s poltergeist 3 or Candyman, or then you have it in the urban area you have it you know which in the in the inner city neighborhoods or the the midtown of the city, which I find very fascinating. Um, so you're right. So there is a kind of a, a trajectory of, you know, at the mall <laughs> with Dawn of the Dead and then into, then finally we get off and we're in the suburban where people are living now. And that's kind of very scary because you're bringing it home, like you said. You're, it's not, 
Um, I mean, that, that's an element for why I was always scared of cemeteries when I was little, because my parents always left, lived near a cemetery that I could see from my window. <laughs> you know, like, oh, make, make sure the kid's window can see the cemetery. So growing up and seeing Night of the Living Dead and watching Thriller, I mean, Michael Jackson's Thriller video scared the shit out of me. And my dad's like, you can't watch this. And even more of the reason why I then tuned in when it was on. Uh, and, you know, so then you think that's going to happen. You know, if there's, if there's a cemetery right there for the little kids. So... When you're in suburbia here and then you see a movie like this where every house looks the same and then next door they're having this entity, you know, uh, this problem with a ghost or a malevolent spirit or poltergeist, um, it's frightening, you know, and it's it's scary for people because I think people can feel like like Amityville, like, oh, this could happen here. Yeah. Well, I think it's just, or Halloween, you know, you know, one of the things we try to, you know, I think we both try to do when we watch this movie is like put our, not just put our like this is our first time watching it kind of glasses on trying to re-experience it again for the first time, but also trying to put our, you know, the glasses on of like, what was this like to see, what would it have been like to see this in 1982? Yeah. Because, you know, we were too young for a lot of these movies uh, or we didn't, you know, see these movies till much later on video or, or something. And so when you watch this movie today, I think it's, it's easy to, not put it in that perspective like this idea of like this was you know this was kind of new for for I just, for viewers then it's like to me it was like simpler times and like i think my problem personally is i think i sat on my glasses my nostalgia glasses so they're a little cracked so when i put stuff on now when i put them on to watch something to me it's just i'm missing something and i don't know if it's just because audiences expectations and mindsets were simpler back then for movies and stuff so when I go back and watch this and haven't seen it in 30 years, I'm like, oh, this is all that happens? It's like oh, really? so quick, fast-paced. You know, it's uh, that same thing that's happened to me again. Yeah, and so I'm this like, one this one didn't quite live up to expectation for you on this viewing, I guess. No, but I think it's because I'm watching it for the show, too. So I'm not completely devoting my 100% to it because I'm, you know, taking notes or whatever and then just kind of looking out or something. Um, it 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 did. I'm not taking anything away from it, but it's just when I go back and watch these movies, I I it I kind of get sad because I feel like some of these you'll never be able to make again. Well, yeah. you know, this well, kind of a thing. Definitely that. You know what I mean? That's the. Th- it's like nowadays the the expectations of the audience they want such sophistication or there's such uh, preconceived notions that have now become a norm or conventions in cinema yeah. that I feel that the modern audience who have no a connection to this they may look at this as their parents or grandparents movie may just look at and be like oh okay and while you're, would you this is tying into what you just said yeah long about way is that this is this was a big deal back then and yeah. now people may not oh you know they may think of the 2015 remake you know where it's just like that you know you, you're killing the past and giving us these remakes it's like no this thing back then was the one that was so definitive and scary. It was the number two movie. Was it number one or number two horror movie of the year? It was like the eighth or ninth movie um, of the year of 1982. Yeah. This is a big freaking movie. Uh, as you said, the complete polar opposite of uh, E.T. released like the week before. Yeah. Yeah, you I know? mean, I guess that's kind of where I was going with this, which is that it it comes out at a time where like the convention for this kind of movie doesn't necessarily exist yet but watching it now i realize that like it still the convention for like the traditional horror movie that becomes the traditional horror movie throughout the 80s to today whether it's the conjuring or insidious or whatever 
kind of they don't take too much from it. So I found like this viewing to be like a real eye. Op- well, I, there's things about it that I always felt about it, but even more stuff kind of stood out to me. And I love that it is like this haunted house movie. And sure, there are certain conventions, but there's so much more about it that never, that in my opinion, never gets really played out in subsequent haunted house movies, like ghost haunted house movies. Like, I love that. In the beginning, like, it's exciting to them. Well, not so much to Craig T. Nelson's character. But uh, Joe Beth Williams is, like, the mother character. She's, like, excited about it. And you never see that in, like, a, in a movie. She's like, check this out. Well, you know, it, yeah, yeah. Which we, I, let's, I want you to remember all these because we can get back to these. But keep going because I think there's a lot to unpack in what you're saying. But, yeah. Uh, and that's, like, one of the things that I think is great about it because, I mean... I think the only reason why, like, we would directly be scared instantly today and not be excited about something like this is because of the way these movies play out. <laughs> yeah. You know, and so if you put it in 1982, where maybe you only have Amityville and then, you know, the changeling, but like to put it in like that suburban thing that we're talking about, it's being unique. It's not the characters don't have this baggage so much of like the haunted house movie yet. I mean, you yeah, know, yeah, they the do Shining like the haunting. There's a couple. And, yeah. But you know, it's not like yeah. uh, they've been bombarded by it. So the fact that she's like excited about it and the little girls like, Oh, do I have to do it again? Kind of thing. <laughs> she's sick. She's over it. She's like yeah. yawning when she's talking to uh, the dad about it. So I kind of love that about this movie because it it has a totally different setup because it's like clear. You you know where it's going from the advertising and or even the name, although I'm sure a lot of people didn't know there were poltergeists before this movie existed. But I love that it kind of has this kind of movie. It's this kind of movie, but like with a twist and it necessarily probably wasn't a twist then. But what's become what's become of that genre is is you know, and I love those. Look, I love like The Conjuring. I love like all those James Wan. Well, it's un- very formulaic now. Universe type movies, and I think those are scarier than this movie because there's an element of fantasy in this movie uh, that I think. But I think that's all correct. That's all Spielberg. That's that's the the Spielberg touches of this are the ones that make it kind of still accessible to kids and. I think it this this kind of shoes the line between going towards a Close Encounters because it's Spielberg as opposed to being The Conjuring. You know, it's like it's 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 a little more I guess mainstream. I guess because it's PG, it's kind of like they're trying to get kids in the theater too. Where for me, I feel like The Conjuring isn't really trying to sell it to the children. You know, The Conjuring is just to horror fans. You want to yeah. see a good horror movie? Here we go. Where this movie is like, bring your family. You might see some scary <laughs> shit, but everybody can go. And then you're like, sure. And then, you know, a guy's ripping his face off. Yeah. You know, uh, but I do agree with you. Yeah, I think you're right that there are definitely original conventions that are in this movie that you don't see too often. And then I do think that's a very realistic. It's a different. It's a very different take on the idea of what's starting to happen when they're starting to have um, sh- shit go down. But that their initial reaction is to treat it uncomfortably like an oddity. Or her, uh, um, what's her face, Joe, Mary, jo, uh, Joe Beth, and um, she is 
you know, excited about it because you think it's some sort of uh, scientific phenomenon. You yeah. know, you're you're you know where the kid, the daughter knows a little more. Um, yeah. Well, do you just, think? Do you think the, the daughter has any kind of shining? Do you? Did you in this viewing? Did you feel like maybe she's a little touched by an angel like Zelda is? No, I didn't get that really. Because uh, I I extrapolated the shit out of stuff in this viewing. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of stuff that I, I'm making my own conclusions. I think that for me, the way I've always kind of read it is like they always say like you know kids are more rece- you know. Uh, receptive to it and stuff like that um i think there's a it's revealed later in the movie that she's born she was born inside the house yeah yeah so i think to me like that's what they connect like they they show themselves to her because there's some kind of weird you know like that soul was birthed into the world in this location so there's they're on the same She's on the same frequency as these. Oh, I see. I look at it more like male- male- malevolent, where they're um they're so pissed that you know, well, you know that this is ha- you know that this is such the level of sacrilege. Yeah, you know, I find I find a lot of the the uh, the archetypes in this that are you know that that are being played on like the disrespect of tradition and you know all this other thing and just the uh, a lot of the the themes and the motifs in this to be, you know, that are playing into a lot of that. And uh, I think an expectation for me is we both read the novelization by James Kahn. Uh, <laughs> Good old James Kahn. <laughs> yeah. so people don't really realize that he... That, yeah, that James Kahn, um, not only was he an actor, that he was also a, a writer of some novelizations and other books. Um, no, we mean James Kahn with a K, who we've actually had on the podcast before he slept over because he did the Star Wars movies. So I think we talked about... He did the novelizations for for all three Star Wars, and he did the novelizations for Goonies, uh, I, uh, Temple of Doom, and um, there's a couple others he did. But we read the novelization for this, and the novelization for this went off an earlier script. So I think the problem I had was, and you and I contacted each other when we both started doing our homework, was that since I didn't remember, I remembered stuff, but then I knew remember I remembered that there was parts I'd forgotten. So when I was reading the novelization, there's whole other things in it that were not in this movie that they cut out, whole other, um, you know, like beeline stories. So I, it was confusing me of what was in the movie and what wasn't. So we texted each other and I was like, you know, is all this stuff? Because for me, it very well could have been. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, and you're like, no, no, oh, 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 you know, 90% of what you're talking about is not in the movie. And I'm like, oh, okay. So when I went and saw this now... Having the knowledge of the novelization, which is freaking awesome, because yeah. I had these expectations. I was like, oh, oh, and then like <laughs> you, you know more from the novel, yeah. Because in the novelization, they set Zelda up so much better. To me, she comes in here in the movie. She always came off as kind of like, you know, not up her own ass, but she kn- she's the cock in the walk. She knows that she's the shit, yeah. you know, and she's in it very quickly. Where I, you know, I thought she was in the movie longer, and then when you read the novelization, she was going to be in the entire movie. Uh, well, it's, so, you know, it's tough to know with the novelizations. Obviously, they usually go off an earlier draft of the script, which is what Dion's kind of talking about. But there's also, like, the author has, I think, like, you know, he has his permission to to make it into an interesting book. So, because there's stuff in the novelization that I can't imagine was ever in a version of the script. Because, like, there's, I can't imagine how anybody thought that they could film it. Well, that's why I think that it was there. I think it was part of the maybe, you know, Tobe Hooper's, you know, 
collaboration. I feel like that this could have been. And then when they look at, you know, it was part of the mother, the motherboard. Yeah. And then when they, the phone book, and then when they realize, wait a minute, how are we going to film this other, this other world that you end up seeing like an insidious kind of a movie? Yeah, yeah. You know, there's these beautiful sequences, but I can completely see the whole B side story of them at the college and the university. I just can't which we imagine. Could all get into. I just can't, yeah, you I can't. Just, I just can't imagine that that all that stuff was in a script. I think. I think when you get to novelizations, there's like the two kinds of novelizations. There's the ones that follow the movie pretty closely with some changes that were because of some script alterations, and then there's ones where like I just feel like the author takes the material, tries to be true to the script, but makes like a novel out of it. You know, tries to really yeah. just make it its own thing. And to me, this one reads much more like that. Like the stuff that's in this script, that's in this novelization would be like if you made Poltergeist like the television series. You know, it's like the 10 part, yeah. his first season. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Netflix. <laughs> there's just yeah. like too much stuff. And like there's two completely different storylines happening, like Dion's kind of talking about. There's the, 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 sto- the movie storyline with the, the Freeling family that you know, we see in the movie, but then there's this whole B plot, which involves like the Dr. Lesh character and the, uh, Tangia, uh, the Zelda Rubenstein character. So there's like, we see all this whole different storyline with them. And then we see when they, and then they come in, they converge. Uh, yeah, I just can't imagine that that anybody thought they would ever make that into like a two hour movie. Yeah, I mean, I just see it plausible. I don't know. I, I wonder we should we should try to find it and ask people with uh, you know who've done novelizations because I can understand filling something out and adding in stuff that you know is cohesive material, but then to completely invent stuff unless it's the creative desire, the you know the the the, yeah. the studio or the creative people who are assigning this out and saying, hey, do what you want, you know. You know, because it's it, that's almost kind of like when you get something like a completely different book, like you know, you're, you're you're you think you're getting Omega Man, but then you read I Am Legend, you're like, this has nothing to do with the you know. It's well, that's because it's based off the earlier book, but they just renamed it for the novelization. Um, with this, it's just uh, I could see it being in this you know 200 page script. You know, back then, you know, they talk about the Blues Brothers was like a phone book when they first wrote it. Yeah, so it's like because, back then, I, that's because Dan Aykroyd yeah, didn't know how to write a movie. <laughs> But I feel like that they they came up with this big thing and they're like, wait a minute, we can't do all this. This is because because it it does a lot of it does feel very Spielbergy and stuff. And then you know when you get to that stuff when they're when they're go, crossing planes and all and there's these battles. You know, I could see that them doing it today. But back then it would have been amazing to see. Uh, but it adds so much juice. It makes me care so much more about. Uh, Zelda's character and and uh, and it gives so much more context to certain things. So yeah. it's certainly fascinating and a great companion piece. And I'm glad we did read it in preparation for this because it does it adds a lot more to the to this to the to the context of the story. Yeah, which, I have to uh, say, like, out of all the novelizations we've read for the show, this was the one was probably my favorite because it was oh, okay. because it was so different and because yeah. like I felt like it read like a book. That's why, I, yeah. you know, that's why, I mean, obviously we'll never really know, you know, unless we interview James Kahn, if he's still alive or Spielberg, but, uh, he'd be like, what, Spielberg, <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> and I do wonder, I mean, here's the problem is that there's a lot to unpack with this. So it, it depends on how you want to proceed. 
We can uh, just start going. Because, I mean, uh, you know. What I would say, I mean, if we want to talk about the novelization, we can just start off with that. Or do you want to go back, circle back, and talk about, like, development of the movie? Well, we could talk. Yeah, yeah. Why don't we do that? And then we can add in the novelization as we go. So they're not, they're all in kind of cohesive chunks. I mean, I do think this is coming out in a very unique time for Spielberg. I am in no way a Spielberg aficionado. Um, I do have this biog- this book that was, uh, was given to me years ago, the Spielberg book I just mentioned. Uh, I have not read it, so I just looked up the chapter on this and some other chapters that I've read for previous stuff. Um, but you look at the Poltergeist is coming out at this time. Um, we pol- The movie we're covering, Poltergeist is coming out. Then we had um, E.T. coming out. But this is also around the same time that the we always talk about the Twilight Zone tragedy happened. And... Uh, you know, I think at the time this was starting to be the bad time in Spielberg's life because he ends up getting divorced, and he talks about when he goes to do Temple of Doom, which we covered on this podcast. Why he says Temple of Doom is so dark, quote unquote. You know, so uh, for the spe- for the the Vic Morrow death, murder, tragedy happening right around this time, it was a very hot time for Spielberg, and and you know, so you don't know. There's there's a lot of. Um, conspiracy theory not conspiracy theories but allegations that spielberg was on set the night vic morrow was killed on the twilight zone movie shoot so and then you look at the other plot here where they're saying that did spielberg direct this or not you know one will never know so you don't know what was going on with spielberg back then was he doing you know was he since he was such the high shit for people covering for him or what so that sets the table kind of for what we're saying here to start unpacking this movie and the development of it and where we go in with, uh, you know, I guess we could, you know, Close Encounters being a hit and then the E.T., which I think the original name was what, Dark Skies? Is that the... Uh, well, that that's... Night that, Skies, maybe? That's an interesting story in and of itself because... Uh, and I guess a good place to start because basically after... And all, a lot of this is alleged, and I'll try to point out things that are kind of contradictory when you hear, when you read, and you research, and you do, you kind of see, you find two different contrasting views of some how some of this played out. Uh, so you kind of have to take it all with a grain of salt and decide which one you want to believe. I guess <laughs> the world will never know. Um, but uh, supposedly. He made Close Encounters of Third Kind, and he wanted to make like a horror movie sequel to it. Is what the word on the street is, and it had a, it was uh, the original title was like, what's that line in in the Howard Hawks produced the thing from Another World where it's like Watch Skies or something like that? Uh, yeah. So the original title was like that, like Watch the Skies for Close Encounters for. Night Skies. The potential, okay, the potential sequel to Close Encounters. Yeah, and apparently, like, somebody owned the rights to that, so they couldn't call it that, so it got changed to Night Skies, Uh, and it was described by uh, people as basically straw dogs with aliens, uh, was the concept, and he talked to screenwriters, ultimately, he hires John Sayles, who had worked with uh, Joe Dante, I think he wrote The Howling, to write uh, the script Night Skies. And uh, this is where some of the stuff starts to contrast. So in this version of the story, he wants to produce, he wants to produce it and he never wants to direct it. So, he, But he thinks of Toby Hooper because Toby Hooper had made Texas Chainsaw Massacre. He was coming off of Funhouse. 
which is a very cool movie. Uh, and I'll tell you the other version of the story after this one. So he wants. Well, to- it's complete random. Do you think? I mean, that it's always alleged or attributed that Spielberg was a fan of Hooper. Um, when you read this this Spielberg book, uh, I feel like the, even the author is kind of, you know, there's people who feel like a little above horror, so they're like, oh, to- they're kind of disregarding Hooper a little bit. So at that time. Uh, not to jump forward, but I think people also, when they heard, my God, Toby Hooper is doing a movie with Spielberg about a horror. This thing's going to be blood. You know, people know him from Texas. Yeah. And Texas was a was a movie even to our in our childhood, which is twenty years later when Texas came out. That was a movie you didn't go at because it was almost X. It was so just hardcore, allegedly. So you can think about bringing Hooper to the table. I, I mean, do you think it was a studio kind of meeting uh, that they thought this guy was a hot shot and Spielberg's like, sure, okay, or Spielberg was on the one that sought him out of all people. I don't... Not Romero or Carpenter. Or, you know? I, I suspect that the more likely scenario is that he probably th- was thinking of a lot of people and Toby Hooper was on that list. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm... Yeah. And uh, so... In this version of the story, he never wants to direct it. He just wants to produce it. He wants to make this like horror sequel to uh, Close Encounters, where these aliens come down and like there's. I think the original version there's like eleven of them, and then it gets cut down to seven because uh, I think they hire Rick Baker to make like a mock up, like a macat, and make a mock up, and they discuss. They discover that it's going to cost a lot of money to make all these alien suits, and uh, so Rick Baker comes in and he's doing like preliminary work on the film and John Sayles is working on the script and all this is happening while Spielberg is working on Raiders of the Lost Ark and uh, contrasting things again a lot of hearsay so one version of the story is he's working on Raiders of the Lost Ark and he's you know dealing with like blowing up things and killing Nazis and all this stuff in Raiders of the Lost Ark and he realizes like I need to get back to you know, the heart and spirituality of Close Encounters. And he starts to have second thoughts about Knights, about making this horror movie. So that's, I mean, who knows? But that's one of the accounts of the story. One of the characters in uh, in Knights, in the original version of Night, this script Night Skies, apparently, is that there is, like, a nice alien who's kind of, like, different than, like, the bad aliens that he's with. And there's, like, this autistic kid and ultimately, the bad aliens apparently leave the good alien behind, whether it's an accident or because they're dicks. I don't know. And yeah. and like the autistic kid befriends him, this alien who's been left behind. So, again, supposedly he's working on Raiders and he ends up reading the latest draft of the script to Melissa Matheson, who was John, uh, who was Harrison Ford's girlfriend at the time. And she, like, finds this aspect of the script, this alien who gets left behind and is befriended by this boy, like, very moving. And and apparently maybe even cries at this part. And he realizes that this is, this part of the script is where the money is. <laughs> you know? No He's already intended. tested it. Yeah. And so he ends up working with her to develop the script for E.T., which takes basically that maybe eliminates the autism aspect of it but takes that simple idea of like this alien gets left behind and is befriended by this boy 
and then how that plays out. Uh, a lot of people point to that, like, there's lots of things in the script in that version of the movie, in Night Skies, that also get used in Poltergeist, but nobody points at anything specific. So I think that's also kind of hearsay, because there's always like this. The thing about Night Skies is there's always like this mentality of like, he was going to make this movie and it got split into two movies, Poltergeist and E.T. So then the other version of this story uh, was that Spielberg wanted to make Night Skies. He always wanted to direct it. But uh, even after he develops E.T., he's still going to make this movie, apparently, according to this version of the story. But Universe, his contract with Universal Studios for E.T. Uh, makes it so that he can't direct something else that year or something to that effect. So that's why he goes to Toby Hooper. Because he's like, I can't direct this, but I can produce it, so I'll get another director. And again, why he picks Toby Hooper, I don't know. I don't know what on Toby Hooper is like... Uh, resume up to that point would be like hey yeah, that draws spielberg yeah, that's holy the, shit that's the guy for this <laughs> yeah that's what i mean it's kind of um now what i hear for my research is that one uh but let me just finish this, this, be, this quick sure, thing sure. which is that like so he pitches this idea to toby hooper apparently in this version of the story and toby hooper says like that's cool but i really don't want to make like a science fiction-y alien movie what do you think about doing a haunted, like a haunted house movie, like a supernatural horror movie? And uh, Spielberg is receptive to it now, and so that 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 makes like Poltergeist, like in a lot of ways, a cre- like creatively reliant on Hooper, but Spielberg ends up is credited for developing the story and then co-writing the script with. Uh, Michael uh, Grayas Grays and, and Mark Victor, Gray. who yeah. uh, go on to write such wonderful movies as Marked for Death and Cool World. <laughs> Which we just recut. We did Marked for Death this year. I know. So those guys have already been on the and show. And they did, they did Poltergeist too. Yeah. They, they, they ended up doing wrote. I think they might even... They might have written the third one too. I'm not positive. But, yeah. Which I think is great for people who want to go follow this out because that's how... I, we were we were unable to watch two prior to this, but I think if we then did a double feature, there could have been a lot of cool answers because I haven't seen Poltergeist two since it came out. I haven't seen Poltergeist connected. two since it came you know, out either. I mean, I know movie I that remember was, that Craig T. Nelson's in it, and I know that they're <clears throat> yeah, not well, they're in all the third in it. one. They're all in it, um, and uh, Zelda's in it. Craig T. Nelson, her, I, th- uh, I think they had to change, of course, the daughter out, um, the older daughter, uh, but they connected very well to this movie. And even to the point with the, with the specters that they see on the video screen in this movie, they say, or, or connection of that movie. But it was so frightening for me because in 86, when it came out, I, we just got Movie Channel. It was on in rotation all the time. And uh, the bad guy in it, who was very a la Rich, uh, Mitchum from Night of the Hunter, <clears throat> who was, I think, dying of cancer at the time, was so gaunt. Yeah. He's so freaky. And there's just sequences in it with him throwing up. The, the thing in the bottle, the snake, or the braces that take the kid up into the corner of the bath. It's just, it was too freaky for me, so yeah. I've never revisited it, you know? Uh, but so my point is, it's cool when you get a, writers that do do the whole, the whole franchise, you know? <clears throat> yeah. 
Uh, but so, I just said the third one, the only two are, is the Carol Ann and Zelda, the only two that reprise, I think, in the third one. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I remember the third one probably more than I remember the second one, other than like oh. being completely, like you said, like completely traumatized by the second one. <laughs> yeah. The third one I only saw once. I saw it once once when it was on video, like I, we rented it, we watched it. And I remember it was like, you know, it was like dark. It was like four o'clock in the afternoon. It was getting dark and we watched it. So I've only remembered from that viewing particular like mirrors and, and yeah, yeah. elevators and stuff and her scenes out. So there's very, I don't, re- I want to revisit it very much so. Um, but um, sorry. So finish your, your, your anecdotes of these different stories about the, we're on the writers now who Spielberg grabs to write this. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's basically <clears throat> kind of the end of this version of the story, which is, I mean, a very different scenario. Whereas in the first version, Spielberg never wants to direct it. He just wants to produce it. And he thinks of someone like Toby Hooper. And in this version of the story, Spielberg wants to direct it is contractually forbidden from directing it. And he hires somebody to come in and direct it. But also in this version of the story, Toby Hooper is the one that brings this very important key element of the movie, which is that, like, it's not an alien movie. It's a ghost story, essentially. But then again, yeah. like I said, but then <clears throat> Spielberg ends up getting story credit and getting co-writer credit. So uh, who knows what the truth is? What were the things that you wanted to uh, touch on? I think it, it was around maybe these are just uh blocks that fit into your story but it was around raiders that you know i don't from what i read he was not a fan of television at the time which is very ironic because he got a start in tv so i don't know how plausible that is but he didn't like television and he almost came up with the poster first a girl you know getting sucked into a television that kind of concept wouldn't that be cool and then the idea kind of goes out around that and like you're saying uh he came up, he wanted to explore the Close Encounters idea of the child abduction, like um, you were saying with this Night Skies, but then they turned into, why don't we have it be a, uh, when it turns into being, why don't we have the, the, the ghosts abduct the girl in this instance? And he goes to Toby Hooper, like you said, and he was trying to figure out which one to do. Uh, Night Sky, which maybe ends up turning into E.T. or something, uh, where he offers Toby Hooper the e the et whatever that is and toby hooper's like i'd rather lean more towards horror like you said i don't want to do sci-fi per se but if wouldn't you wouldn't how about us doing a horror movie like spielberg had pitched him two ideas and almost the same thing with the writers the writers say that they were hired on to rewrite the spencer tracy movie that you're that we see in them them watching in the movie that ends up being always that he does at the end of the 80s and the writers are like you know and they said we were young you know, we, we, this is something you'd never do now, but, you know, we were hungry, so we said to him, that sounds great, but we're not as enthusiastic as that, but we'd love to do a ghost story. And then that's when he's like, oh, really? Okay. So their account, and then Hooper's account, Hooper, that says, listen, I'd rather not do sci-fi. And then that ends up being that Spielberg ends up, the reason he directs E.T., and then gives this to Hooper, but at the same time, like you're saying, that Universal had this caveat in his script that he couldn't, maybe while he was in production of E.T., he couldn't direct something. So he kind of gets stuck in a situation where then they had to write this really quick because there was an impending writer strike, which ends up happening. So then the two writers are end, end up picketing their own movie 
while they're while they're they're on the picket lines while they're filming this, and then they were worried about a, on a, another maybe another director strike or something too, so they had to get this done. So uh, it's it's just up to speculation why Hooper's brought in. But like you said, that it is definitely you know Hooper is the impetus for saying why don't we do a haunted house and. I guess this is something Spielberg says he's always wanted to do is uh, uh, kind of a go back to his roots and do a horror movie or a ghost movie. And at the same time, Ghost Story, which is another movie from the, this time, is out. So these movies are big, changeling, shining, ghost story. So why don't we play off that and do a supernatural movie? And in this Spielberg book, he talks about being young and living in the New Jersey house in New Jersey. In the New Jersey house in New Jersey. And at night, looking at the cracks in the wall in his room and thinking about the... Um, he called it Heronius Bosch, the uh, painter who did that beautiful uh, Garden of Heavenly Delight painting. Uh, like those kind of creatures coming out of the cracks and saying, come play in the cracks. So the, and there are scary elements that he brought from his childhood that he was trying to exercise that in this movie, the elements. Yeah. So I guess the two, <clears throat> the two stories kind of me- mesh together a little bit, but it yeah. is muddled. Because there's parts of this era that he doesn't like to talk about Spielberg, so... I don't think you could talk to him about this, like the Vic Morrow death. So people are there. There are big blanks of that. People don't know that yeah. aren't filled in. Apparently, uh, as to, uh, to, to what you were saying about things from childhood, apparently he also had a tree that he was very scared of is <laughs> also one, yeah. one account. And that's where the kind of the monstrous tree comes from. And then the writer, there's an, a, there's an account too, that the, one of the writers had the same thing and that that tree broke the window in a storm once. So, um, and this also too, which is, I guess, to hit on, which is interesting, there is a Richard Matheson Twilight Zone episode called um, Little Girl Lost, I think it's called, uh, written by Richard Matheson, who we've talked about at length on the show, and also the score was done that episode by Bernard Herrmann, and that has a lot of similarities to this movie's idea where um, two, two parents wake up at night, hear their daughter calling them, and they run to the bedroom and they can't find her. And they find and they find out that she has fallen into through a portal by a, just an a, a portal's open and she's gone into a different dimension. So the parents call their physicist friend. The man comes over and they're trying to figure it out. And they the fa- the father at the end of the episode ends up going into this world and it's done pretty well to find his daughter. And he's and he ends up grabbing her and the physicist pulls him out at the last second before the portal closes. And it's very much like in in certain regards, there's no haunted supernatural aspects to it. But it is a lot like uh, the basic story of Poltergeist to the point where Richard Matheson even said that when the movie when Poltergeist came out, I was like, "This is really odd." Um, so there's a similarity there because at the time, remember Spielberg has a huge affinity for uh, the Twilight Zone. He's in preparation for doing a Twilight Zone episode, which was going to be Maple Street Monsters at Maple Street, I think it's called. That ended up being changed at the last minute because of the Vic Morrow tragedy, and he does uh, the Kick the Can, the episode. So he could have been viewing a lot of Twilight Zone episodes up into that, getting prepping yeah. for uh, the Twilight Zone movie, and then came across this and said, hey, you know, you know, season three, whatever episode it is, this might be a good one to, you know, he could have had this in the back of the mind as an impetus to add in these things with the writer. Writers. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it... Like you said, it's it's kind of like this hazy spot in his career because he, like you said, there's a lot of things he doesn't really want to talk about now. So, uh, anyway, we laid out some possibilities of how this would be. We should invite him. We and we'd like to say we know 
Do- I was going to say Dr. Spielberg. Mr. Spielberg's a listener of the show. So free invitation to come on and yes. talk about this stuff. We'd love to talk to, the, uh, to him about the Twilight Zone or, or this the Poltergeist movie. You know, just Bring your sleeping you know. bag. And, uh, yeah, and, and, it's, and we're going to be respectful. You know, we're not going to you know, be any kind of, you know, we, we, we freaking love the guy. We're, we're, we praise him every time. You know, we used to stick up for him in college with those pretentious, uh, you know, people who used to, I was going to say a dirtier word that used to slag them off. And Blake and I would say, no, you know, what the heck? We love Spielberg. So yeah. anyway, yeah, it's, he's, uh, a, he's a freaking auteur. Look, I mean, we've talked about Spielberg on the show. I mean, I'm, the only thing we've covered of his are the Indiana Jones movies, right? But no, um, but we talk, no, because he came, we, you think that, but then we f- forget how pervasive he is. So he came up a lot in Goonies. He came up a yeah. lot in Gremlins. He came up a lot in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. That's true, uh, he yeah. came up a lot in Back. To, was it Back to the Future? I feel like there's a lot of movies he, he had a hand also, in that. He also might have gotten brought up in Harry and the Hendersons because <laughs> I think that's yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of movies he produces. You know, at the time, or you know, gives his he he brings his creative control in uh, that we've we've certainly touched upon yeah. quite a bit well, more this, than Jurassic Park. Yeah, we, we did, did too on the show did, and Back to the Future. Back to the Future. Uh, uh, all those movies we just brought up, we we we, we covered Gremlins, yeah, yeah. Uh, Goonies. So you know the stuff that he produces in the eighties, though, is. Bad. Did we talk about him in the Lost Boys? Maybe I, he might have gotten. He might he might got know. brought up, but I don't I don't remember. Okay. Uh, another movie that he I believe he produces, which I absolutely adore, and I, it's been talked about a lot lately uh, by me. Young Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> <laughs> I know. That's uh, a great... F- yeah, exactly. So these are all these movies he has his hand in because, I don't know, it's just like his trajectory is that he be- he's able to play it himself in such a way where he ends up building this beautiful reputation, but at the same time, he's able to do these other side projects that I don't know if the casual film goer as so much will realize it's him if they're not looking at the credits. Uh, but he's able to just have his feet in a lot of genres, you know? I mean, at the end of the... You know, then by the 90s, he's doing um, stuff like uh, Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan. And so, you know, that's when he realizes he he can no longer satirize uh, Nazis after Schindler's List. So, um, you know, you lose those movies like Last Crusade and stuff. We did Temple of Doom on here, too. Uh, He also produces uh, in the 80s. He ends up producing amazing stories for television, which was which we've talked about here. Yeah. So we've talked about him quite a bit, uh, you know, uh, and we've given him his due because he's freaking awesome. And he's a big, big part of our childhood and a big part of that era of, of movies. Uh, so he ends up writing with, with, with the two of them. They come up with this thing. And then so Spielberg ends up having a heavy hand in all this, which is he brings us all his people with him. You know, Kathleen Kennedy, all these people come with him. Mar- Frank Marshall. Uh, he brings his whole crew and his entourage. And uh, Hooper... Hooper's there, and they come up with this idea of this uh, kind of a ghost abduction script. Um, And they write it quick because, I said, there's a writer's strike. So they get it quick, and then, you know, they go to shoot it. For for whatever reason, Hooper ends up, you know, directing it. But I don't know if it's to get into now about there's the big controversy about who can maybe do that down to... That's soon. I mean, I don't know... In terms, you know, let's talk about the movie itself for a little bit. Sure. Um, I found it, you know, as Dion and I have both admitted to uh, on the show, 
in our old age, we've become softies. And I found this movie very emotional. <laughs> uh, yeah, I almost cried through the I, scene. I did tear up a couple of times. Oh, what scene was it? I almost... Uh, I teared up when... Was it when they thought when they thought they she died? No, I forget. There's a as we talk about it, I'll figure. I'll out. tell you very. There was a scene. I was like, oh my god. A very specific okay. scene that I got very emotional at is when they're in the hallway outside the door and they're gonna go in, and uh, Tan uh, Tangina, uh, Zelda Rubinstein character is like, which one of you is the? Oh, is the is, yeah. is he is she most afraid of? Yeah, and then. She makes uh, Joe Beth Williams like say, "Run towards the light. I'm in the light." And she's like, I, "That's a lie." And she's like, "Just say it's going to save your daughter." Oh, I know. And, and she's like, and she, I, hate, "I hate. I'll hate you for this." It's like, and, Jesus, woman, I'm helping you. <laughs> well, she's but she's crying. She's like, I got very yeah. emotional in that scene. I think that mine was uh, earlier on, and I can't remember. It's something to do with the kitchen. Something happens in the kitchen. Ah, oh, I can't remember what the hell. Or maybe it was with the TV. They, I forget. I have to think. But it was um, something that I was like, Jesus, I've seen this a thousand times. And for some reason, it's my, my emotions being triggered. That's how like, like messed up I am nowadays, where I'm starting to tear up at something silly yeah. or innocuous. Uh, for me, I think this movie, one of the most probably underappreciated, uh, unrecognized aspects of the why this movie works so well is the casting of Joe Beth Williams and Craig T. Nelson. I thought you were going to go there with, with, well, I think this fits into, um, she is the female, the strong female character in these movies of the early 80s, the the woman, you know, because she is the one that kind of, you know, she has to rise to the task and, you know, because the, there's a big, watching it this this time around, I feel like there's a good argument some somebody could make that she's a terrible mother, (laughs) the choices she's making, or both of them. I mean, they just, there's a lot of things that go on in this movie, which goes, I think, to the greater theme of uh, what's going on in here about the, the, uh, but it's just, I think it's her power, like you said, that, that, um, you know, that she, she is, uh, the two of them work great together. Yeah. I think they're great. They're believable as a couple. Uh, they have a great chemistry together. I think she's so damn good in this movie. Like, I feel like she yeah. should have been nominated for Academy Award for her performance in this movie. Because it's, I mean, it's subtle. Yeah. I mean, it's like understated. But like, it's, it grounds this movie in a reality. Uh, yeah. The way, what she's, she's how, so hot. And she's so I hot. She's so, <laughs> I think she's so good. No, I mean, I had, I've had such a crush on her growing up. And now I realize watching this, I guess she's my age. Or maybe even younger. I don't know what age yeah. she was when she did this, but it's just crazy because you know, I'm like, wow. But yeah, she's really good looking. Yeah, she's that helps. She's definitely me. one of the hotter women in. Uh, but she hotter moms in, of horror movies. She fa- falls in line with the Spielberg mothers too. Like you have, uh, you know, what's her face from ET, and then you know, uh, it's it's she. It just seems like you know she fits in one, as one of these. Uh, but it's just like because we're kind of. I mean, clearly we bring our own baggage to the drama of what's going on. But really, her the way she plays it and the way she reacts to things is what really cements this film in a reality, I think, for me anyway. Like, she's, she's so good in the tragedy of, like, losing your daughter. But the hope 
that she has because, uh, but the hope that she has because she can hear her through the television. Uh, it's just like it's this. It's just it's a it's a kind of a brilliant movie in that it plays with like this kidnapped it's something that we see in like kidnap movies, you know. They ransom like the distraught yeah, yeah, like the distraught parents, but the hope that they're still alive or the hope this and uh she has to play with a lot of things. She's playing on a lot of them different emotions in this movie, and I think she does it like superbly and um and then it plays. And I on. think he does too. Yeah, like, I think his reactions because you don't really see. You can make him a buffoon, um, you know, and th- you know he's not, and he comes across as really level-headed, a guy trying to. I mean, even though he's implicit in what happened here, that we learn what as this all unfolds with his company he works yeah, for. But he doesn't know. You know, he's <laughs> exactly. He's going towards. You know, he's. I mean, I mean, even uh, James Karen's character. I feel like. I I I really like and I feel really bad for at the end of the movie because I feel like all his he was trying to be noble he wasn't being the dick you know he thought hey you know it's not an Indian burial ground it's like it's all right you know and he didn't realize and because because at, at the end I think there's something at the end that he does that I feel like I feel I have such empathy for him but you're right the two of them Greg T Nelson and her work so good together yeah and they're well, believable. You know, just the the stuff with them in the bedroom and they're smoking pot. But like you can like you can believe that these two people are married, a happy married couple. Uh, I love the scene where, you know, he comes home from work and she wants to show him the kitchen. She's like, think back to when we were younger and you you still had an open mind. (laughs) Do you remember that? (laughs) And he's like, yeah. He's like, well, try. She's like, try to try to try to be that way for this. I'm going to show you something. Well, I see it's I I get the feeling too that there's so much they're bringing to this where it's like I feel like they play him as more of like a conservative. He's reading Reagan's book yeah. in the bedroom. She's more of maybe a liberal. She's smoking the pot. I mean, he's smoking it too, but she, you know, it's 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 like there's this homogeny of what's going on in the era, you know, yeah. all coming together, the home, the theme of cuz one of the writers says too that he doesn't believe he doesn't think there's anything called the typical American family, like, or whatever that is called. So like this, they're trying to do that, but they, that it doesn't work here. You know, it, it, the, the, you you want, you can try to be the the best family you can be, but something like this could happen and completely destroy your world, you know, and they're completely believable how they respond to it. Absolutely. And just, just so much, so many beautiful touches, obviously in the script. I mean, they're in the book, like, you know, when he goes and he, Robbie's scared and he's telling him to count between the lightning and the thunder. That's like a very real moment that I think we've, well, that's, all, we've all had with our parents. I learned that from this movie. Yeah, they told me that. And I remember like when I was little, f- afraid of the thunderstorms, they used to tell me what the, 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 the gods bowling up there. That was what they used to tell me. So that, oh, they're playing bowling up there. and they, Or they would tell me. I remember being at my bay window looking outside doing the counting game yeah. when I was very little, you know, listening because I learned it from this movie or, or they, you know, so it's like that was a big thing for us, too. So it's like they're 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 I think they're great parents, but it's just funny. I think some of her choices in the movie, uh, Joe Beth Williams, people are like Jesus, it's, you know, the, um, uh, you know, when Tweety dies and she's more like she's not upset the bird died. She's just upset that the bird died on this day. 
you know, and then she tries to flush it down the toilet, and not, she's not going to tell the daughter, and then the daughter well, finds her. Well, she's going to, uh, she, she would have bought a new one. I mean, I think that's... Oh, you think that's the implication? She's just going to swap them out? Well, she's like, why did you have to do this on a day when they're not in school? Because I think she would have been like, I would have just went and bought a new bird. Oh, I thought she was just going to go and not just, you know, tell, figure a story out and tell her. And, probably. And she probably just said that, it, you know, it got out and it flew away and it'll come back. Yeah, exactly. I, mean, I, don't think, I, I, I thought, think that's typical parent stuff. I don't think that's bad oh, parent stuff. Well, I, I don't think it was good. I think some people would say that, you know, she should have went through it and had it. Because then the idea, then, you know, they want when they want to bury it, they're burying it in the cigar box. It's also the, the, the stuff they had the drugs in, you know, the cigar box that you see later on. So it's like... You have her like, ah, you know, okay, we'll bury it with her. And then the, the older daughter's like rolling her eyes at the little... Because Caroline almost represents all the innocence that they kind of don't... They're running around in life concentrated in other things. Where Caroline is kind of centered and is like the, almost the pure innocence at the heart of everything. You see all that in her, in her room, the, her lamps, a heart, and all this kind of thing. But then later on, it's like when the older sister is being uh, sexually harassed by Billy from Predator... And she's like looking out the window, and she's like, "Oh, <laughs> she's laughing with yeah. it." It's just, just, it's just fun, fun things that I think if you play devil's advocate, well, with the choices I mean, that's, she's making, that's the 80s, you know, I mean. <laughs> exactly. It's like she's, she's like, "Ah, it happened to me, so it's going to happen to you too." Other than you that, know? I mean, other than that, I don't. I mean, that was definitely a weird a moment, even for me when I watched it. Other than that, it just seems like typical. Parents yeah, it's just stuff. harmless fun, you know. No, but just uh, like everything else seems like, I don't know, just seems like that's the way parents are even today. Yeah. Other than that. Sure. Other than that moment. Yeah. Uh so but I think they they're both great and you know, and like I said, especially Greg T Nelson's trying to keep it together as the as the father in the relation, but you could see the stress, you know, they really emphasize that with his eyes yeah, and he's yeah. not sleeping at all and yeah. all. Yeah. Well, I mean, even yeah. like one of the other moments I was going to point to as like just a nice touch is after he does the count the between the, the lightning and the thunder with the sun. He's walking through and he hears that the older daughter, the Dominique Dunn character, is on the phone. And so he just opens her. He's like, "Good night, good night, Dana," uh, to scare her. And then he opens again. It's like those are just like real moments that just. Yeah. Uh, and it's also like, <clears throat> unfortunately, those are the kinds of things I think that. Uh, nowadays, because there's so many like screenwriting classes or screenwriting contests where you submit a script and you get feedback. I mean, I feel like a lot of those are moments that like people would be like, "Oh, you don't need that." But clearly, it was in the in the in the script because like that's like that is in the in the novelization, so that was written in the script, and. I think it's very, those moments are very important because it's, like I said, it's, it's, you're setting up the everyday, you're setting up the reality of this story so that when the TV people come and they take, uh, Carol Ann, there's that intrusive, you know, it's intrusive. And it's, if you don't have that set up, then the, the break in the everyday becomes less, you know, powerful. And uh, even like the dog, like going around eating everybody's snacks, you know, yeah. checking well, on it's, everybody. It's, it's, <laughs> it's setting up the tradition, you know. It's setting up. This is the same thing happens every night, you know. And then in the morning, them running around, you know, it's like that a typical American family. You know, everyone's running around. You know, their kids are arguing. Mom's trying to do stuff. Dad's everybody. Mom's always making food that no one's going to eat. 
you know, because the dad's got to run to work. He's fixing his tie. He's on. He's drinking his coffee. You see all, you know, so it's like you're setting all that up that like, you know, this is what happens every day in the morning of the typical household. So yeah. you get a lot of that. Well, I just you know, love uh, as I a th- setup. I guess the I guess like the moral of the story is that I, I just love the setup of this movie. Yeah. I think it's just like a brilliant everything about it, like even to the. You know, obviously, when she comes back and she sees that the chairs are on, you know, in a pyramid on the on the table, she's freaked out. But then that you see that 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 freaked outness quickly becomes excitement, and yeah. like the next scene when they're in the bedroom and she's like, "Well, you know, it's just like she starts explaining it as like there's just these scientific things and like she's totally open minded, and that's why that's one of the. It's playing with what you were just saying, which like he seems kind of conservative, and uh, I guess he's supposed to be quote unquote close minded, where she seems much more maybe well, new, see, a- new agey. That's uh, it goes to that line you just said, where she said, "So you know, you read into it, which is this is not in any of the script of the book, but it's like you know, remember when you were open minded, like you met me and you were open, but then as people get older, they kind of." get set in their ways so maybe he's now kind of rigid businessman doing his thing she's you know packing her shit in a little bit she's not as zany as she used to be but you know like you're saying she's spiritual she's into this kind of stuff where he's like well i don't know about that you know so that's why she's saying well, like you're worried. saying she's like yeah it's very, it's he knows very clear this isn't he's concerned He's like, I don't want anybody going in the kitchen until like until we. Well, he's more the practical guy. Yeah, yeah, he's like, why would this be? Well, she's like, this could be great, and he's like, you know, I don't know. Yeah, you know, I need to worry about. I'm the one who's has to worry about the family yeah. here. And he's know, also so. worried about, which is also typical suburbia. He's very worried about like what everybody else is going to think. So like, don't talk. Yeah, don't tell anybody about it. Yeah, they already think we're weird. We don't get along. I mean, there's that beginning. You know, the, right at the beginning of the movie, you have Spielberg playing off the his his. Uh, the image and people's uh, uh, retention of his images. So you have that very iconic uh, image from Close Encounters with the with the alien coming and the little girl and the door opens and you know goes to the farmhouse. I think it's in a farmhouse. So at the beginning of this movie, everybody falls asleep, and then you have you know her getting up and going to the TV like it's already almost starting, and you have that image of her almost silhouetted, silhouetted. Like, again, and if to me, it was very reminiscent of Close Encounters. Like, people were like, okay, you could tell this is a Spielberg movie's in it, and this is starting, and right at the beginning, you get them uh, starting this idea of what's happening and what's going to go down, and, uh, you know, it, it plays in very quickly to the story starting to flow, like you're saying, with, uh, with them going and kind of being cautious and not knowing. So, um, uh, I think it's great. Yeah. <laughs> It's a great. It's it's a fantastic setup. What uh, the other things I'll, I'll just point out, like story ways within the movie that I think are are great because there's a lot to unpack, and so we need to start getting into some of like the nuts and bolts of some of the controversies and whatnot. Uh, I think the effects are. I think the effect of the beast at the end of the movie when she tries to get into the room and that it comes like that huge puppet thing, very iconic. That yeah. is, in my opinion, one of the greatest like visual effects in like and and all movies. That thing is so fucking cool looking. <laughs> yeah, and I worried did you think people now like the 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 young people will will like some of the effects like to me when she fell asleep and you had the 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 presence coming out of the TV that ends up slamming into the to their to the wall. Yeah. You know, and she's like they're here. To me we talked we did 
Garfield's Halloween special in Halloween some years ago, and you have that, the pirates, and you have the, the creepiness of the... Like, I feel like, do you think some of these effects still hold up, or do you think people... Like, I agree with you. Like, I think all that stuff is phenomenal, her ripping his face off and all that. But do you think anybody nowadays will find any of that dated? And I'm genuinely asking that. I'm yeah, not yeah. saying I do. I'm just thinking, like, I, I worry it goes back to people who are just, you know, they blow this off. They don't I understand think, the importance um, of stuff like this. The hand that comes out, it's a little cartoony because it's animated. Uh, yeah. Like hand animated. Uh, yeah. But I think it looks really cool. But I can see yeah. that maybe they think that's a little cartoony. To me, the, the biggest things that I feel like maybe might not work for uh, a today audience is the clearly like optical impositions when they open the door. When Doctor Lesh comes over with her guys, oh, and they're they're floating around, and the things are floating around. Like there's a yeah, very yeah. clear like mat thing yeah. happening on some of that. Some of it looks kind of cool, I, and I think well, just that you could tell was ahead of its time. That was like virgining. Yeah, that's the best you can get. And I think like know, the com- the compass on the record spinning is fucking brilliant. Uh, yeah, but some of like the lamps, like some of that stuff, you can tell. Well, like you're getting into Evil Dead territory there, you know. With, yeah, like, totally. The, like, you know <laughs> what I mean? And it, and it's in the tree thing earlier on when the tree, and that's a, another thing. I mean, I'm uh, we can talk about that, and we'll we'll get right back to that. So yeah, so that stuff happening in there, and then I felt maybe the when the face comes apart. Now, as an adult, I can well, see that's an, that's an watching that or, now. I see how. I think they, in my opinion, watching it this time, they cut to the fake head like one shot too early yeah like he like in my opinion like he should have they should have started he should have started pulling his face apart with like you know regular like his face fake skin on his face and then cut back because then it cuts to like the water or whatever in the drain and then when they cut back and he's like really going at it i feel like that effect would have been would have been would have been would have played so much better we just see that fake head yeah. a little too much uh, before it starts yeah. getting torn apart in the beginning. That that moment, and then there's like the big monster head that comes out of the closet, which I think some people might think is a little uh, cheesy today. But other than oh, that, I thought I, that that's that's frightening for me. Like you said about the one with which I also it's so iconic, the dog one the two of those the big head coming out of the closet yeah. i mean i so think it's scary. cool i think it's yeah, cool yeah. but i think I like it's an effect that people might uh turn their yeah. you know put their nose up at now uh, but like i just love the way whether it's like ghostbusters with the with the oh, yeah. librarian uh, i was just going to say that or the ghost coming down from these stairs there's like a um or uh even uh darby o'gill there's like a beauty to the way uh, ghosts are filmed or presented in cinema uh, pre-CGI that is yeah. just gorgeous to look at. Well, I like that idea. I equate it to Spielberg, but I guess Spielberg had nothing to do with Ghostbusters. But I equate it to that Spielberg kind of, uh, I love the idea of the ghost, the bright ghost. Yeah. You know, the ghost but, that's a, that's a, that's illuminating or glowing, yeah. you know, that because you don't see it a lot of times it's just this rotting corpse in modern day. And, uh, you know, I have a, 
a screenplay that actually has ghosts like that. And I love that concept of the ghosts glowing and like when they're coming down the stairs and, and like you said, the librarian and Ghostbusters. And yeah. I but, feel uh, like there's a couple other examples where they do that in movies around this time. I mean, but like ILM and Richard Edlund oh, did, right. did, did both. Yeah. Ghostbusters. Both and, and, uh, yeah. So maybe it's a, maybe it's a, it's a pre CGI ILM thing and i love that because i i feel like you don't see that anymore yeah. and i hope people who are listening to this aren't going to take this and go run with it because that's going to be <laughs> we're we're saying but it's like i love that idea of of the because you don't get that look anymore the glowing kind of it's just very nostalgic for our youth you know because that i don't want to say that was happening in the 30s and 40s and maybe you can point to examples but usually the traditional way is a ghost is a certain way uh, or has been now kind of imprinted in us where this was the other way of looking at it and they just look so beautiful yeah. you know when the ghosts are coming down the stairs and they're interacting oh very very raiders of the lost ark you know when at the end when they're coming around you know at the yeah. at the sequence with the nazis so it's very you know faces melting uh love all that you know love it and i also just love, love like the storm rolling in Oh, that those matte matte paintings are so freaky. Or when he's up, I love the matte painting when they cut to the long shot of. <laughs> uh, I've always loved, even as a kid, the sequence when they're with James Karen up at the graveyard, and he's show on the hill, and he's showing. So, I I always, even from a kid, love that you see in the uh, uh, close to the camera, you see the the, the white picket fence. And then in, in the background, you know, you see them talking and then it's kind of revealed through the conversation why that fence is there because it's the fence to the graveyard. So when they cut to that wide shot of this completely matte painted uh, graveyard and down and down at the bottom there, the little valley where they live. And then at the top, you see this mounting storm coming, uh, very ominous. You know, I love all that, you know, so uh, the matte, matte paintings and the storms in this movie are particular because those are almost too like warnings. You see, like when the kid climbs the tree at the beginning, he kind of sees the storm rolling in yeah. and you almost are worried he's going to get stuck up there and fall and hurt himself. And that was, I think they're playing on all this stuff too. You know, is the kid going to hurt himself falling on this tree and, you know, that kind of a thing. Um, well, even so, that, like, the movie partially, you know, opens, not directly, but almost opens with, like, the death of a bird. You know, like, it opens with death, this movie. <laughs> well, it's like, and it's a canary. It's a, And it's almost like a canary in the coal, the canary in the coal mine. The, the, the bird dies. Yeah. And then the bird's kind of foreshadowing when they bury the bird and then they dig him up the next morning because of the the... the Builders are coming in to put Absolutely. the in-ground pool in. They're telling so you. That's they're a, telling that's you a, the plot right there in this. Yeah, <laughs> and scene, and the, those two scenes. The, for me here, there's a lot to unpack. Well, and I don't want to take too long, but it's just the idea of I love that um, everybody's in their own thing. And like I said, they're, they're, the the daughter, older daughter's rolling her eyes at the um, at Carol Ann for wanting to pray, and it feels like it's because of our technology, right? That right that the uh, that we inadvertently give the conduit for the dead to talk to us because they could just be at night going to bed, turning their TV off, but they're falling asleep with the TV on. And then when the TV's on, that's opening the channel for us to talk for the ghosts to talk to us. And I feel like there's a lot of, it goes back to the spiritualism of like uh, the burial ground where people laugh at, it's like we have an idea of we don't want to set you know it's sacrilege to to disturb an Indian burial or native burial ground, but who cares about the the graveyard and the tombstones? And it's almost like the it's 
all this kind of disrespect is playing up. We're, we're, car, we're, we're This is what the idealistic 50s and 60s suburbia has turned into, the 80s. We're cemented in here. Everything's slightly old. We're running around. We're, we're in our own world watching TV. There's a television in the kitchen. There's a television in every room that they have, living room and their bedroom. Uh, everyone's doing their own thing. The, the older daughter's on the phone. And this is happening in the greater world you have the you know everybody's it's the middle class you have the neighbor that they don't really get along with who's a little heavy set you know and he's into his own thing so all these elements are playing into like the sacrilege of what's going to about to happen you know that that the warning signs of this and them having a child in the house and if this is opening a conduit do you think watching you read the novelization as well uh and i don't remember it happening so much in in the novelization in the novelization did the did the did the tree just fall over? Did the tree tree get taken away by a tornado? You know what? I, I don't, don't feel like I it don't did. remember either. I, I thought the tree just fell over and you know caused some damage, and they had to get rid of it. But I almost felt like the in this you have a little of the Evil Dead when the when the tree comes in, it it was almost like they were trying to grab both kids, you know, because the tree I didn't remember this that part, but the tree comes in and the tree takes him out and is almost eating him. You know, and then and then so it's like that's happening outside. They forget Carol Ann upstairs and Carol Ann gets sucked in that way. But then, you know, I thought that if this is a damn tornado that happens, isn't it plausible that she got pulled out of the tour? You know, they never think that she got taken in the cyclone, ripped out of the window and is laying, you know, two (laughs) blocks away. (laughs) Yeah. On the hood of somebody's like, you know, gremlin. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Um, You've brought up Evil Dead a couple times and you're absolutely correct. And the fact is, most of the stuff you're talking about is Evil Dead 2, which comes out after this. Well, in Evil Dead 1, isn't there some forcible scenes with tree branches and moving? Oh, well, the the tree. Totally. But like the. Yeah. But like the cyclone pulling things into like. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sure. Uh, The stuff flying around the cabin. Uh, I had no even Ash's hair happened. gets a white yeah, streak in white. it, so it's yeah. totally you can totally see how like Raimi's influenced by Poltergeist yeah. for for Evil Dead Two. You know, because the scene when they open the door and he's kind of like, "Oh, you saw a Matchbox car move six inches." You're, you know, <laughs> look at this, and then the shit's going, on, and then it's it's like it's whack town in there because it's like the, you you hear. You hear it's it's almost out of character because you hear the book like it's talking. It's very Evil Dead yeah. passes. You have the record, and then you have like you said the um, the uh, geography. Uh, what do you call that? The pointer compass. Uh, Isn't it compass? The compass. Uh, I, f- I feel like there's another name for it that I used Protractor. to protractor. Anyway. Yeah, maybe it's <laughs> well the compass gets on it and it's playing the record. So you have a lot of elements of like again the the maleficent the you know maleficent kind of yeah. Uh, <clears throat> well, I mean. When, one, I mean, I, to- I don't know if I ever thought about it before. It's been a long time since I've seen this movie. But this time around, like, I totally see, saw the tree stuff as a distraction. Yeah. The tree takes Robbie as a distraction because they want Carol Ann. Yeah. And then, and then the beast takes Carol Ann when everybody's paying attention to the tree. That was my take this time around. Uh, but... Uh, and I kind of feel like, and maybe it's because the book kind of play. I feel like the book plays. I mean, get, I think it's a good time to start getting into the book since you know we've already been talking for like two hours. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, I feel like the other the other spirits that we see on the stairway, you know, 
they're, they are kind of like malevolent. It's really the beast that is the, it's the sinister thing here. And he's using Carol Ann, which I, I think she says in her, in Zelda, uh, Rubenstein's character says in her monologue, which is like the beast is using her to control everybody else. Well, yeah. So you get the idea of the, the, the spirits who don't know they're dead. I love that phenomenon you see like in the Sixth Sense and stuff where people think they're still alive and that's why they're still haunting. So you have them around, especially it's emphasized in the book that the um, that there's this limbo that we see like in a movie like Insidious where this in-between world where these ghosts are just walking around and it's kind of freaky, you know, how they discuss it in the book where there's, you know, people stabbing each other or there's uh, people crying, there's babies, there's flappers, there's people in top hats. It's everybody who's buried in the cemetery and they're, they're kind of, and then, so I don't know with this viewing, uh, you wonder, is the beast awakened, comes out? Because in the book, you get the name of the beast. It gets very much into, I keep saying, it keeps very much into the insidious territory. Well, that Zelda absolutely. Goes, I, in fact, you know, so goes much in there, so. Gets the name of the, what's the name of your beast? What's the name of the beast? She knows like four or five different names that they say in the book, which I can't even pronounce, you know, and then when she gets, so to finish this out, I feel like, I wonder if the beat, it, were those people, was it also the reason this is happening is because the, the somehow the portal is open for the beast to come out, the demon, say, and then he's using these souls or whatever, these spirits that were either happily buried in the cemetery or just ghosts that no one knew about, and then he's feeding off of them be, by via Carol Ann. Because yeah. at the end of the movie, which it's, it's explained way more in the book, I understand, she starts saying, go towards the light. I wish all that was able to somehow, because that all plays out in the book in the limbo world, where she has the mother go in. In, in the book, she, does, she never says, she's never about to go in. She's, she, at the last minute, she tells Joe Beth, you have to go in. And she's like, why do I? She's like, you have to go. And Joe Beth decides to go in, you know. But and then she has to fight the beast in the world too. So it becomes this whole different thing in the in the book. So uh, I just don't know if if the beast is using her to be able to suck off the people because then when Zelda tells them the lights over there, they start jumping into the light. They realize, oh, that's the way out. They don't realize what where they're starting or like almost a trance of being dead in in this limbo. Yeah, but it's very insidious. Yeah, well, that so much so that like while we were reading the novelization to each other every night, <laughs> yeah, before bed, we read a chapter before bed, and then listen to our records. <laughs> I tweeted to Lee. What? There's nothing wrong with that. I tweeted at uh, Lee Wanell, who wrote the Insidious movies. Like, have you ever read Poltergeist the novelization? Because yeah. he must have. <clears throat> There's so nothing like. Nothing direct. There's not like scenes and stuff that I feel like are ripped out of it. Yeah. But like the the concept of this other world and going there. Well, I want to go on to, record that I have a horror movie that you haven't read yet that I've had for six or eight years now. That that is a uh, urban horror movie, a haunted house building in in Harlem, and that has a couple scenes like that. And I want to go on record now saying this happens a lot with when I write stuff and I see because it takes so damn long for stuff to get out there that I had only just read Poltergeist the novelization at this right now with you for this podcast. Yeah. So uh, I don't want to be later claiming like we're saying now. Did you you know are you sure you didn't get this <laughs> imp- you know inspiration or you're stealing stuff because it's such good stuff. I love that yeah. idea. It's like it always goes back to me to Beetlejuice and that idea with the with the football 
football players and they're like, coach, I don't think we survived. You know, it's like, you know, the idea of the people don't know. And that's the, that sixth sense element that it's so frightening, you know, and a lot of that plays out in the book here in that, in that netherworld, yeah. you know, where these, where these demon beasts and then, you know, Zelda's getting the name of the beast and, and, uh, I loved all that. I love the buildup of the character. So you humanize with her more in the book, uh, for my yeah. self than in the movie. Cause in the movie, she just comes in and she comes out. She's a force to be reckoned with. Yeah, the um, the novelization, as we've kind of uh, implied, has a, a lot of stuff that's not in the movie. I think it's a must for anybody who does enjoy this movie and yeah. wants to spend the twenty bucks on eBay. Uh, <laughs> it is it is it's so cool. It's definitely worthwhile, and it definitely does give you a different perspective on the things that are happening in the movie. Uh, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know. But then, you know, some of the there's a, obviously a lot of minor things, but some of the bigger things are like um, it, things that I think are like only implied. Like Joe Beth Williams's character is like, I wonder if the sleepwalking's genetic because I. She tells the story to Craig T. Nelson about how she sleptwalk. Well, that's like a real cons- even more of a concern in the book, and they go so much so that they go. She goes to see a doctor. Because she's waking up, they're having this thing where she's waking up talking to the TV, and it's frightening them. And so they go see a, a, a special doctor, and they're trying to figure out coverage, and the mother's very worried, and she takes them, uh, you know, some far place. So there's a whole scene where she goes to this doctor, and then the doctor's at, and then aren't they almost going to put her on meds or something? Well, I mean, I think the important thing about that scene is because uh, I mean we could run into detail of all this stuff, but I, I think just like in a very no, sk- I think we just gloss skim, over. Yeah, the importance of that scene is she reveals like in these dreams that she reveals these characters that she sees and she talks to, and Carol Ann does. Yeah, and one of them is yeah. like the the woman in white that we see within the movie. But there's all these other ghosts that are in the book, like the, the waiting f- woman they call her. Yeah, the waiting woman. Then there's like the fire, ma- the man on fire, the man on fire, the fireman, and all these spirits that she describes all these people that she describes in this scene are spirits that we later see in the movie either uh in like the extended version of that scene that's in the movie when the waiting woman comes down the stairs or when the zelda rubenstein character goes into the into the other world and she sees these characters that we now as the readers of the book have heard about because we've heard carol ann talk about them before is there an extended scene of that when they when the woman comes down the stairs well there's uh, just uh that scene is like i think we in my recollection and uh no i mean is there a movie is there an extended version no of i'm the talking movie about the extended no? ver- oh. that, the extended version in of that book. scene in the book has well, like it's 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 absolutely phenomenal in the book because in the book she comes down all it is it's this mist and it comes out with these light orbs, and then they encounter the mist and the light orbs and the darkness and the light this flame and they're playing with each other but then when they go back and review the videotape they see all these little orbs were actually people walking around, and you kind of apply that in the book in the movie. Yeah. But I wish it was a little clearer in the movie. You could see them a little clearly, you know, a little more. I don't want it to be like Ghostbusters two when the people are getting off the Titanic, but it'd be cool to have a little more to see. That's a flapper. That's a old man. Because well, in the book they describe in sentences. Of, there's a little bit of detail, but yeah, not yeah. as not quite as much detail. They also talk to the, that waiting woman. Through the television. Well, she's a bigger character. Yeah, yeah. And she she helps and she tells them stuff. Um, she shows up and then and then Zelda interacts with her when she's in the netherworld. But the biggest difference, the biggest extra stuff, the most extra stuff in the book, it all revolves around this uh the netherworld, but also this like B story of the Doctor Lesh and the and the Zelda Rubenstein character. Um we discover 
so much more, like Dion is implied, so much more about the Zelda Rubinstein character. She, you know, she can't sleep because of all these visions that she has, and she goes to this group of uh, other psychics, and she kind of well, like, she's been does, like a doesn't even want to go anymore, but she just yeah. goes to like catch up with friends that are also psychics, and uh, there's she does like a sleep study with Doctor Lesh, and that's kind of how it all starts. And so she knows about Carol Ann in the book way before she shows up uh, in the, in the movie. Well, they think they, they're, they don't, they're kind of um, uh, not Dr. Les so much, but the other two are very kind of skeptical of Zelda and she's having these issues and she's saying that, you know, this is happening when I'm sleeping. And then it, it's almost like their, their original study is they're trying to then do a thing where, since she says she's psyching, she's having sleep problems. Doesn't she have somebody else? She has, it's, it's very much the, the, the con, the basic concept of dreamscape. Yeah. Where she has Zelda start sleeping and somebody else is sleeping, and she's told Doctor Lesh has told the other person uh, a, a key word, and they're sleeping in the next room or something, and then they're trying to see if Zelda wake up and if Zelda can think of what the other woman said. Yeah. And this, you know, Christopher Walken. It must be the same program that Christopher um, that uh, uh, Christopher Plummer and Max von Sydow work for, and then they go <laughs> and they try to kill the president in the other movie. Yeah. Um, but that starts off as that, and then it it morphs into. Uh, Zelda starts having these these visions in in the dreams that are getting so bad, and she's and she's realizing. So they they end up getting to a point where they hook, they make a portable equipment for her, like an EEG or EKG, and they they take it with them and they put her in a car. Yeah, and they're basically, trying to see like basically in a nutshell when when she's connected to the material she's having this dream, and when she discovers Carol Ann in the in her dream state, this little girl in trouble. When she faces a certain direction while she's in bed, the the EKG thing kind of goes crazy. So, yeah. So they so discover like because they don't know how to find her. She's like she wakes up and she's like somebody needs our help. I need to help them. And so they discover because they don't know who it is or how to help them. Uh, one of the guys says, "Well, like, well, if we hook her up and we just get in a van, and when we're facing around, the right yeah. direction, theoretically, the EKG will go crazy. We'll just keep following that signal." until we get wherever we need to go. So there's this big, which is great. It's just like, it's very yeah, cool. Great. It's a very cool concept. And, yeah. <laughs> and then they get to the house and she, isn't she talking like Carol Ann too? Isn't she in the, she's now at this point, doesn't they say that she, it's not her voice when they're, you know, that's the, that was the impetus. Doesn't she, she wakes up as Carol Ann and they're kind of interacting with her in the book. And then, so they're like, they get the idea we have to. So once they get in the car and Zelda, uh, um, you know, leads them, guides them to the house. That's right when everything's happening. It coalesces when they're the, the the parents are crying at their wits' end. Doorbell rings and Zelda. They're there, like, "Hey, we're here to help you. Yeah, can we come in?" And they're like, "Ah, oh, yeah," because they're that's in the middle how, of this insanity. That's how they these two get connected. We never see really how that how he they find each other in the movie, but in the book, yeah. like they ring the doorbell. They. She, uh, Tangina, the Zelda Rubinstein character, gets out, and they're like, she, she's like, wa- she walks to the house, and then they ring the doorbell, and Craig T. Nelson's character Stephen opens the door, and she's like this little woman, all connected to all this equipment, <laughs> and then I think she passes yeah. out. And, yeah, because uh, she's ex- she's mentally exhausted by that point, and they're in the middle of they just lost Carol Ann, 
So they're they're freaking out, and then that that's that brings them together. Where in the movie they kind of cannibalize that a little bit, and they have the scene with Greg T. Nelson. I guess finds them. He goes to a university, and and the, the you know they said that we've looked through the yellow pages or whatever. Uh, we lose that, and then the other thing which we lo- lose, which I don't know if they film because in the notes they say they did have an actor that did they, they didn't that they cut out was there's a scene where Doctor Lesh goes back to her university with all this evidence and tries she has a big meeting with everybody at the university all the professors and the all the the faculty to show them this stuff and it's after they have the scene with the uh apparitions on tape on video she brings them all this stuff with the stuff that materialized the um uh the the, watches watches, the cameo and the cameo and all yeah and uh, everybody kind of la- scoffs and laughs and acts really like academic and you know fucking pseudo intellectuals and like they walk out and they're ah oh, you know the you know they're very you know they're very like douches and then so no one can, even though they know her and they respect her I don't know they they think it's all hogwash to the point where they all walk out so at the end I of this I didn't presentation read, I didn't read it as them being that snotty about oh. it. I mean, well, they, they were, were. I mean, they're walking out on the. They're they're talking and they're walking out, you know, and they're kind of like rolling their eyes. And seemed, one to me, it seemed like they were just like less. They were just not interested, and people were walking out to go to meetings and stuff. It's oh, like, I thought they were just they didn't skeptical. See, they you didn't know? see the importance of it, and they were skeptical. They were like, "Well, yeah, you know, there's a I lot that of was, things that, that was could account for this." And, uh, yeah, but so yeah, it she, ends up leaving is that the one guy? She she her elder the the, the elder professor like, like her, her kind of mentor. Yeah, he's there, and and they cast him, and I forget the actor's name at the moment that they say that they had, and he believes her, and he kind of pushes her on to do all this, and she's at her wit's end, Doctor Lesh, and he's like, don't you know, you have to, if you do you believe this, I believe you, if you, I, you believe it, do it, and then he's the one that she shows all the, you know, he's looking at the cameo, and then there's a bigger implication that, which I don't know if it's necessarily understood in the movie that those are everybody's stuff in the ground. Yeah, those are stuff people were buried with. That's why there's a newer watch than an older cameo and all that kind of stuff. And maybe since I've been immersed with the material for a week and a half or two weeks, I'm not. Is it that clear that the payoff? Because I know at the end of the movie when one of the when, when that one uh, coffin opens in the pool and the woman falls out, you do see all the jewelry fall off of her. They almost do it on purpose. So I wonder if that that's supposed to be the connection. People are like oh. It's all their stuff because in the book they say you should give it back. The waiting woman, they start connecting to the waiting woman on the TV, the the apparition, and she tells them, you know, you need to give that stuff back. And they're like, oh, how do we give it back? What do you mean? And so this is stuff that's in the book. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I don't think it's clear, the jewelry. Okay. Because I think it's great. But I think it's implied. You know what I mean? Like, the problem is the, the revelation of the cemetery uh, is, and that they're actually like dead people is later in the, like yeah. is later in the movie kind of um, in that you, you can't make that connection until much later in the movie. Whereas in the book, even though the revelation of that, like it's on a burial ground might not be sooner. The revelation that these are people and spirits and stuff is, it comes earlier in the book. So, uh, it's certainly clues, more, at least certainly more clear in the book, but I I think I think you can certainly put two and two together by the by the end of the movie that that's what they were. But at the time, I don't think you you can I don't think you have the that you don't have the information at hand when the stuff falls out 
and when she's yeah, looking, oh, yeah, yeah. and when she's looking at it, you can't really assess. I mean, I think you can guess that they're items from. I don't know. There's certainly items from another place. I don't know if you can. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think I've ever made that leap, but I think in the book, it's in, you know that they're helping you get to that conclusion by having her elder mentor help. They're looking at the stuff and they're trying to figure it out, and that and he's like, "This is a real cameo," you know. Yeah. He, you know, and he's in his 80s in 1980, so and the full life he's led the the professor that that is not in the movie. So I, you know, it, it seems like these are great. You know, revela- at the end, when when it, when if that connection is made or not, I think that's a great revelation. Uh, I think it's such a great device, and um, this goes back to like when this movie came out. The uh, not the, I'm not going to say ignorance, but the the audience not knowing, making the connection. Like when the revelation comes about, when he's talking to James Karen, his boss on the hill with the, and then he's like, when he, James Karen says like, well, we did it already down there, you know, um, James Karen, wonderful actor who I think we had on. I feel like we had it on. He had, we had him on before and I don't remember what we had him on for, but we, we were joking how great he is. Cause he was the, in the eighties, he was the Pathmark sponsor or yeah. he was the spokesperson for Pathmark. So he used to do all these Pathmark commercials. And if I ever do a biopic on, um, Joseph Kearns, Mr. Wilson, I want, well, James Karen passed away, but I'd have him play. Uh, <laughs> he's such, such a great. I would have because I think he, he's he's such a great guy, a great actor. People know him from what the Return of the Living Dead movies. Um, but he makes the revelation. He says we've done it already, and then at the end of the so then you're halfway there because Greg T. Nelson's like, well, what do you mean you did it already and you moved? Oh, you know. So he's starting to make it, but then I feel like it's such a. Uh, uh, what do you call that? A revelation or a, I don't, I, I as a child, and I'm going to make the leap that as the audience of the eighties watching, I don't, that's such a great device at the end when the, when the literal coffins start popping up, I feel like people, then that's, Oh my God. And yeah, then move the headstones. You know, yeah. And then it, move, the move the graves. <laughs> it's such a great, that, that along with they're here for me is so much more of a, the, the eighties. That is the most memorable line, yeah. you know, that people get, you didn't move, you move the headstones, but you didn't move the bodies. Yeah. And he's like, Argh. it's like the poor James <laughs> Karen, you know, cause it's so much for, cause James Karen in the book is really trying to, you know, he's a salesman, but he's trying to keep them. And then there's so much more implied. Cause he, he only has a little screen time but he's great in that scene when he's looking around and he's like wow you got some stuff you got some tv problems in here and he's just walking the piano starts moving yeah, yeah. you know and he's and he comes in he's like you know you got some circuit light issues electrical problems when the light the bulb gets bright yeah um but i feel bad because at the end of the movie you know um in the book he goes uh uh greg t nelson gets takes a his boss picks him up and they go to the club quote unquote to talk about the next deal they're going to make and them moving to that house on the hill because they initially accept that house that he's going to move, that they're going to make for him. So he that's why he's driven back by his boss at the end of the movie. He shows up, Greg T. Nelson, he runs up, and then you see James Karen still in the car. And I feel like if James Karen was an asshole or a dick, he would have drove away, but he, he gets out of the car. He runs up to see if he can help. And then Greg T. Nelson grabs him and starts fucking yelling at him. And then... You know, all that stuff starts happening. The group, and then they end up shooting a fucking laser uh, lightning bolt at James Karen too. <laughs> you know, so the poor James Karen, the, the the boss. But yeah, so. I mean, he certainly doesn't seem malicious, but his certainly I think it's just ignorance. It's ignorance know? and greed, but not like. But it, 
that goes to the bigger plot for me. It's, I think that they were also kind of implying that with the family. It's like everybody's become kind of complacent to like the, you know, because now we're so into our earthly, you know, uh, now it, nowadays it's internet and our phones, but back then it was television. It was TV. Everyone's so bothered by something else. They're not going back to the core innocence of Carol Ann. So the, the spirits are so obsessed by that or upset. Yeah. By that, you know, this kind of disrespect and sacrilege, yeah. you know, that you're you're showing for the, you know, the stuff you should be paying respect to. But uh, like the dead. <laughs> so so got it's got like a lot of stuff to get to. So yeah, uh, the stuff the, the things that I think are coolest about the book is all the stuff in like the other world part. Yeah, there's like some really cool shit. Like the Chan- Gina Zelda Rubenstein character, she goes before. Before the end, you know, somewhere in the middle of the well, book, she she goes she, there. She ends up passing out, like you said. She brings him to the house, passes out, and they go to the hospital, and she sleeps for like twenty four hours. And that's where you're saying she wakes up, and all that shit happens. Yeah, but even and before that, that yeah. she she wakes up, but then she she goes down to like the morgue because she wants to be closer to the dead to put herself. In but that's all trance. during that. I mean, that's all during that part of the book yeah. while they're dealing with that stuff in the house seeing stuff, stuff, you know, all that stuff. This is happening, the B story of her, is she's in the hospital, like you're saying. She goes to the dead, and that's how she goes into the yeah. these other world sequences. But she goes, like, she goes to, like, find Carol Ann, and she ends up, like, you know, mid-book, almost, like, battling the beast in the, ne- in the netherworld. And that's when I was like, I don't know how they ever expected that this would have been filmable. So that's why I, yeah. I, I have hesitations to think that like this was ever in a version of the script because they could have did it, but too much money. No, it's like <laughs> I don't even know if they could have done it. Uh, at least not the way now, Spielberg could have did it. At least Spielberg not the way it's described. Because like because they're in another realm and she is a powerful psychic and he's obviously some kind of demon or, or whatever when they fight like she he runs at her and she turns into like steam into like smoke she turns her she yeah. changes her own form so that she runs through her, and that he like inhales her as as smoke into its lungs and so then He's she's holding his breath and trying to crush her inside his lungs, and so she keeps making herself smaller and smaller to try to get through like the pores of his spiritual like ectoplasm, and she ends up going into his brain and his like and starts <laughs> squeezing his brain to, to let her loose, and then he can't do anymore. He lets, and that's their first confrontation. It is fucking it's, awesome. It yeah. is so yeah. Cool. It's, I mean, it's so cool. And then I even the parts where she's in there and she's seeing these people go by her, and she's trying to find Carol Ann, and then she's fighting these spirits. Because it's in this world where all these, this is where all the ghosts are and the waiting woman and stuff. So it's just such a, I feel like they could have did it like Spielberg, but it would have looked a lot like the, so it would have been awesome. You know, you think of how ILM looks and, you know, them fighting, they could have figured out a way to do it practically, but it would have been a lot of money. It would have been really hard, you know, and uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how long, how, if they included everything in this, how long do you think the running time would have been? Over two, I, like, I mean, two hours or two and a half hours? Oh, or? no, I think you would have like a four hour movie. I mean, that's why I mean, I think I think it would have worked. It would work as like as a, a series. series. <laughs> yeah. Um, just because like you almost get like, there's almost like, if not just as much of this side story with the Tangina and Dr. Lesh characters as there is about the family. It's really like the book is about these two stories. Yeah, their journeys both together. 
which I like that they back up because that for me gave me more validity validity to like the Zelda character in the book yeah or in the in the movie it's just very she comes in and she's kind of like come on we gotta go you know let's let's go you know or in the book you 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 build up this affinity or you you're with her yeah this journey you totally you understand her journey you understand her story yeah. you understand where she's coming from much more you understand her as a um. A tortured person, more like you see in the uh, Lin Shay character in the Insidious co- sequels. We see, oh, yeah, that, yeah, you yeah. know, like she's the psychic that comes to help. But in the sequels, we see which some of them are the first the backstories. The yeah. third movie is a backstory, and so you see that she's given up being a psychic because she can't. You know, like you get much more of that. But that's also spread out over like four movies that you get that story of the Lynch yeah. character Insidious, whereas you don't get that in the first movie. movie in the first Insidious movie. So, and they say in real life Zelda was a psychic, or she was a. I mean, and because she only started acting. This is this her first movie. Last week we talked about Sidney Greenstreet's first movie being Maltese Falcon at a, you know, age what was he sixty one or something? I think Zelda was like fifty two here or something. Yeah, and, and this I don't, is her first movie. I don't know if it's her first thing, but it's certainly very early in her acting career, to my recollection. Yeah, um, and she became a star because she's in all three of these movies, and she's in some other movies and stuff at the, at the time. You know, people she was instantly a recognizable face, and she has the line, "This house is clear," which is a lie, but <laughs> but you know, she didn't know. She's um, in a uh, I, the movie she does before this is a movie that I just recently became aware of because I watched the trailer for it on uh, Amazon Prime a couple of weeks ago. Uh, she was in the movie Under the Rainbow, which is like this comedic farce about the making of uh, Wizard of Oz, which stars Chevy Chase <laughs> and uh, I think Carrie Fisher. Yeah, Carrie Fisher. And then, like, Billy Barty, like, it's about, like, the munchkins, the, all the actors that play the munchkins and the crazy zany stuff that was happening uh, behind wow. the scenes. Uh, so I guess she plays, she probably plays one of the munchkins and uh, that one of the actors that play plays one of the munchkins uh, in that movie. So uh, she was There's in, a ton of Chevy Chase movies that fall by the wayside of that era with going yeah, on. That, like, late forget. 70s, early 80s. Yeah, he was, he was pooping them out, like, three a year, and you forget about all those. Anyway, uh, anything about the end of the novelization you want to talk about before we get into some of the controversial things about the movie? Oh, uh, well, doesn't it end differently? Doesn't there like a, uh, an epilogue there? Don't doesn't it end where um, they m- move out of that? Well, there's also the the thing that we see what a year later in that movie Entity, but they have to take. I think this was going to be filmed, but they they took it out. Was yeah. there is a rape? There's a, a demonic kind of rape, which is kind of implied. I think this is the difference with the cuts, because I think that they maybe film some of this, and then they realize they can't, for a PG, they can't have some of this. You know, this is atrocious <laughs> to have a, a ghost raping a woman. But there's a scene, they're so exhausted, you know, that the uh, Joe, uh, Joe Beth takes a nap in the afternoon before all the shit goes down, and then she's accosted in bed by the demon and it's 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 and it's quite graphic in the book uh 
because she's so tired, she slips through the entire thing. And they're talking about moving clothes, uh, piercing skin, biting, bite marks, uh, you know, smoothing the buttocks out, almost, I think, for penetration. Then she wakes up not feeling well. And then this is when Zelda's in the ghost world. She sees kind of the demon doing this, remember? And that's why she has the confrontation with the demon, to get the demon off of her. And then that's why the demon has a taste for, for the mother later on in the movie. The demon, at the end of the movie, comes back for her. And then there's a little more, before she gets flipped around the house, or the walls, the demon's kissing, holds her down in the book, and it's kissing her. And you could see, they say that, like, you could see her mouth and her face, getting her cheek getting pressed. Because there's like a you know something trying to kiss her and hold her down and pull her, f- and then that's when she starts rolling up the walls. So that's that's all in the book, which I can see why they didn't put that in the yeah. movie. It happens early. You can't have that in a PG. That happens, happens twice. It happens yeah. Yeah, early and then at the end there. She you know. like takes a nap in between. Yeah. Uh, things like th- during the day of uh, yeah the scenes earlier in the book. But you can't have that in a PG movie. I mean, then you you go see that movie Entity from a couple years later. The special, I don't. There's some of the stuff I don't still don't know how they did that in Entity. The the the, the spirit touching uh, her. Uh, the what's her name in that? Who's in that? It's Barbara Bar- Hershey. Barbara Hershey. Yeah, uh, her getting accosted by the spirit, which is that's based up supposedly on a true story Entity. And then there's the other movie, which I think The Conjuring is based off of. Uh, that story that's supposed to be a real story. I think the male is raped in real was in that story in real life was supposedly raped by an entity. So you could see that's in the book that you could see why that wasn't yeah um, put in. But what happens at the end specifically that you're saying was there something? I don't where, remember. <laughs> my yeah, reading comprehension for, is some shit. So do I. My retention is terrible. Uh, so I, I, if if I can remember something, I'll go. But I think it kind of goes the same way, yeah. and they get the hell out of there. You know, uh, and then the whole thing happens, you know, the whole thing gets sucked into oblivion and then, you know, it's all craziness. Um, but uh, the other things about this movie, unfortunately, a lot of the legacy of this movie is uh, kind of shrouded in controversy, um, both of a morbid nature and of a business nature. So I, I think most people that are big horror fans and probably uh, Spielberg aficionados and uh, just maybe general movie fans of our age they know that there is this controversy as to whether uh, was this movie really directed by Toby Hooper or was it kind of ghost directed by Toby Hooper or, or by Spielberg and Hooper got the credit and it's uh, doing a lot of research on it. I still feel like it's kind of unclear. Did you, do you feel that way about it? Um, well, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I think there's I, a I, lot I of controversy. Think, I think things lean a certain way, but uh, I don't know if anybody really knows the truth, except for the late Toby Hooper and, and Steven Spielberg. The uh, Spielberg book I cited before, he interviewed Toby right after the movie Poltergeist came out, and uh, he asked that question, and uh, Toby replied, uh, that question isn't good for business, he said, neatly summing up his quandary. And then, you know, later on, they, they when when they're talking about it all, uh, Hooper is kind of unexcited about how he says things. So I don't know because every you think about Spielberg bringing everything in. It's the reason why Spielberg this movie's getting made. We've talked about before with Spielberg will, you know, like take someone like uh, who when they did Grem not Gremlins Goonies, and Spielberg's on set the entire time. But what's his name technically directed it. Uh, then you hear the different actors. Zelda says, 
the six days she was on set, Spielberg was directing her. The cast go back on that. Greg T. Nelson says, no, uh, Spiel, no, Toby Hooper did the production. And then there's a cameraman, an assistant cameraman who came out in 2017 saying, no, Spielberg directed the whole thing. Yeah. The stuff that I was on. Okay, so- and me and I, you and I used to talk about as well fairly recently the idea of that he was only involved in the production and he left to go do not do any of the post-production but then doing my research hooper and then in my research i learned that pooper's like no i spent 10 weeks on on post-production because spielberg at that time was filming all that other second unit stuff with ilm and was doing post with et yeah so again there's a lot of contradictory stories uh to put a, a little bit of a timeline on it so Basically, Hooper says later in an interview how this started. And again, we're just going with information that we find. Uh, oh, so I'm sorry. One, let me break in. That reminds me. Yeah, in this book, the Spielberg book, they imply that it was the studio that first leaked this. It was the studio's publicist slyly doing this, which is because and, and that's interesting that the, the Spielberg biography book says that. So it's like, oh, okay. That they're attributing that the studio started these rumors. And then that didn't help what Spielberg ended up saying, which you might be getting to. Yeah, so, uh, but Hooper says in an interview at some point that, uh, much later, that in reference to this, he says that this all started when the Los Angeles Times ran a story about the making of the movie, and a reporter came to set. And they came on a day where Toby Hooper says he was directing scenes inside the house, and he asked Steven to do second unit direction outside the house, which is the opening of the movie uh, with the kids and the uh, the toy cars and the guy on the bike. And he says the reporter came and saw that Steven was directing that scene. And so it kind of then snowballed as to like, well, who's really directing this movie? But to- Hooper says that he was directing second unit while he was doing other stuff. Spielberg kind of stokes these fires with a, a-, a- L.A. Times interview where he says that uh, Toby isn't a take charge sort of guy. If a question was asked and an answer wasn't immediately forthcoming, I'd jump in and say uh, what we could do. Uh, and Toby would uh, nod in agreement. And that became the process of collaboration. So that then kind of. Also, they say that there is a, uh, a, a featurette of the era of behind the scenes. Uh, of them shooting a scene, and in that feature, they attribute to that you see Spielberg directing the entire time as well. So that comes out either on TV, HBO, I don't know, and you see Spielberg in the, you know, directing stuff. So people are starting to point to, as yeah. you're saying, that like maybe this is Spielberg actually did this, but he couldn't because of the Director's Guild rules. Yeah, you know. But as we're also as like, Dion kind of suggested earlier, there's also this thought of that there was an impending director's strike about like that could be coming yeah there was a writer's strike already and then now that it could be also leaning to directors as well but so if he directed it if he was the credited director he couldn't work on the film if that strike happened but as a producer he could work continue working on the film during the director's strike uh is is a theory um and also that the et universal had a caveat in that script he couldn't work on anything direct anything while he was he could not direct anything while he was not i think it's also important to put things to perspective that before before the dismantling of the studio system like the producer was the 
in most in many cases, unless you had guys like Hitchcock, uh, Howard Hawks, who was always an who we talked about last week, who was all uh, we mentioned last week, who was always an independent filmmaker. Uh, it, it, other than certain directors, the producer is really the creative force behind movies during the studio system. That's why you get like David O. Selznick, who was like a David O. Selznick film, not really like a <laughs> somebody else's yeah, film. And that's why like, like Hitchcock and and the Selznick didn't really mesh. They did a couple of movies together with a contract, like Notorious and Spellbound and stuff, but they did not work well together because they were both creative forces. So putting into perspective that like earlier in, in Hollywood history, the producer did have the primary creative voice on a lot of on a lot of movies. Uh Spielberg being, you know, the hottest thing in Hollywood, a very powerful director and producer. Uh somebody said, I forget who said it, but somebody said like when he when he produced used cars with Robert Zeme- uh, Zemeckis, he was also like a very forceful person direct uh producer. He was on set and finally, Kurt Russell, who was a seasoned actor even at that point because he grew up in the in the system, uh, came up to Spielberg and said, "Like, look, I can take direction from Bob Zemeckis, or I can take direction from you. I don't care which one, but I can only take direction from one of you." And then Spielberg kind of realized that he was maybe being too forceful, and he backed off, and then gave Zemeckis more uh, power on set and. Whoever I unfortunately I can't maybe it was Mick Garris whoever it was that said that says this says the problem was like no but nobody on there was no Kurt Russell on the Poltergeist set to say like to well, Steven. he Spielberg also is very proud he's you know he says he line produced that Poltergeist he says you know he was very proud of the production he was involved in it from the very beginning and for people line producing means you're on set doing everything you're not you know so much the money guy you're making sure stuff gets done and his he looked at his job on that set was as line producing and so uh, it's hard because it looks like it's a mutual production and then they talk about the different cuts to Toby Hooper right says that like you know, the, the, he's very happy with the cut that came out. He had a cut. He showed it to Spielberg, and they did some minor changes. And uh, he says the changes are minor between the two cuts. And then when they asked Toby Hooper, well, what, you know, what's the differences? He won't get into any kind of details. He's being trying to be very diplomatic, you know. And he says, uh, Hooper, quoting from this book again, Hooper said, with without very much enthusiasm, I found it a very good experience working with Stephen. He wanted input, absolutely. Change that absolutely to a yes it was uh what toby hooper said but it ended up getting so much so that spielberg ends up putting a letter out well yeah that kind of comes later so uh but like in an interview that spielberg does with fangoria in 19 in early 1982 he says uh i thought i'd be able to turn poltergeist over to a director and walk away i was wrong uh and then it says if i if i write it myself which he wrote he was one of the writers of uh, Poltergeist. If I write it myself, I'll direct it myself. I won't put someone else through what I put Toby through. And I'll be more honest in my collaborations to a film. So he's clearly aware in 1982 that he's maybe a little more hands-on than uh, most producers are. There's also, uh, like, uh, there's stories where, like, not only did he co-write the script, but he also 
storyboarded the entire movie. So and that, he also usurped casting too. He he's the one who made the casting decisions. He discovered Carol Ann, that actress, and he you know apparently so Drew Barrymore like, uh, auditioned, and he ended for up- this movie. And then yeah, he puts her in for E. T. But he he finds what's her name in the commissary in the Universal commissary eating dinner, I have, eating lunch. I, but I don't necessarily think. I, I think I think that's. Uh, big producer thing i think it's i think casting is someplace producers are are really hands on because they got to sell the movie too so they need to sure um, sure but the fact that like the story that spielberg wrote did the storyboards was meant which really meant that toby hooper was was directing the movie off of really spielberg's vision for it um as dion and well uh, Deanne pointed out that uh, Rubenstein, Zelda Rubenstein, uh, she said that the six days she worked on were directed by uh, Spielberg. She also implies that Toby Hooper was under the influence of either alcohol or some drugs or something. She's- I think I think she was implying he was doing coke. Right? That's my impression. Now she he said she said he brought what some chemical enhancers that were not needed on set. And James Karen later came out before his death and said she she's saying that as a bitter old older actress that she would say that's not fair but then greg t nelson comes on on uh on the record saying after production toby hooper was not involved in post-production yeah he says um in 2012 room work magazine kind of investigates and they talk to james karen uh martin casella and oliver robbins um all actors inside in the movie uh Oliver Robbins plays uh, Robbie, and uh, they all say that Sp- that Toby Hooper directed it. They all come to yeah. Toby's defense. Uh, in hindsight, Mick Garris, who was a publicist at the time, apparently not MGM's publicist, if, if the story that Dion <laughs> heard is true, he I mean, was also a close friend of Toby Hooper's. He, of course, he came he became a director in his own right. Did a lot of those Stephen King uh, uh, TV movies and. And whatnot, he he was on the set because he was working in publicity in Hollywood at the time, and he later becomes a writer on Amazing Stories, and that's like his first like dive into actually making stuff. He says that he was on set, and Toby was the director, without a doubt. The camera person that Dion's talking about is John Leonetti, who uh, became, becomes a cinematographer in his own right, and also ends up being a director, and he directed the movie Annabelle. Uh, which is kind of part of that whole insidious conjuring thing. He was assistant camera because I believe his brother Matt was the DP on it. And he's the guy that comes out and says, without a doubt, Spielberg directed the movie. And he says he has a photo that proves it. And so there's this photo during the tree sequence where you see, to me, if you look at the photo, it looks like Spielberg and Hooper are both kind of very uh, enthusiastically, you know, directing the kid. But, uh, John Leonetti is one, and that's what kind of sparks this interest in this controversy again in more recent years when he comes out and he says that Spielberg directed it. Um, there's a producer named Julia Phillips who uh, didn't work on the movie, but uh, she wrote a tell-all book, autobiography, uh, called You'll Never Eat Lunch in This Town Again in the early 90s. And uh, she writes in the book, because uh, I guess she doesn't like Spielberg so much, she says... Uh, that she hasn't spoke to Spielberg in four years, but uh, they run into each other on the MGM set a lot where he is quote unquote directing 
Poltergeist. He is supposedly producing it, but Toby Hooper, the director, uh, it is whispered, has lost his cookies and Stephen had to step in. And then she says, I wonder if Stephen has been the first to whisper the Hooper rumors. It would fit his MO. His MO. So she's implying that uh, maybe Stephen himself is possibly spreading this rumor that he's directing uh, well, that's I've heard that he's that the studio spread it, and then also that he spread the rumor himself for whatever reason. And then when since he put, takes that um, big full page uh, ad out in Daily Variety, well, that only, kind of, but that only comes out of the fact that uh, the Directors Guild of America steps in because yeah. of these claims, and ultimately they're looking for two hundred thousand dollars in damages for Hooper. Uh, but ultimately, MGA. Yeah, they MGM, do an investigation. Yeah, they investigate it, and and ultimately they end up kind of fining uh, MGM slash United Artists uh, fifteen thousand dollars to Hooper because Spielberg gets a bigger credit in the trailers. Well, and, that's see, yeah, and it's it and it was because of that investigation that that Spielberg ultimately writes this open letter. Yeah, because in, in this book it says the letter could be interpreted as an example of Spielberg's good-hearted generosity or as extreme disingenuous. And then they say that the, the, the latter interpretation about his disingenuous gained reputation from a rumor that the Director's Guild had a secret settlement with him that allowed him to be, they're going to pay Hooper 15000 in damages when he gets paid, but because of that, Spielberg gets a bigger name on the poster. You know, his name is bigger. And he's like, and Hooper's like, what, fourth build? Uh, you know, they like, you know, in, in the actual thing. And then people, critics point to his next movie. Hooper's next movie is Life Force. And they say, if you look what happened to Life Force, people say that that bombed and people, the critics, not me, are saying that some people even laughed at that movie and they thought that it was silly, and uh, which I don't agree with. But they say, if you look at, poltergeist and how big that was and how well it was done and then you look at life force you can tell by the two that they were they were directed by two different people yeah uh it's in terms of the post-production stuff that dion was kind of talking about uh hooper said that he did at he spent two weeks editing the film while spielberg worked with ilm on those visual effects um in the book score to death conversations with some of Hart's greatest composers uh, what, what written by moi uh, Alan Howarth, who is best known for collaborating with John Carpenter on his scores in the 80s, he will also work extensively in sound uh, design and, and <clears throat> sound special effects. And uh, like he created the special effects, the sound effects for the Enterprise and the in the motion pic, Star Trek, the motion picture, all that stuff. So he he's working and he also worked on Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, but in Poltergeist, he's assigned to his big thing is you're going to create the the effect on Carol Ann's voice when she's in the other place when they're talking to her so he's most of the movie yeah so he talks about how he went and he met he met like I don't to my recollection I haven't reread the interview but to my recollection like he didn't even meet Hooper he dealt with like Frank Marshall and Spielberg uh, so as far as he was concerned Spielberg was the person in post-production. Yeah. And uh, the, the story's funny because he says, he's meeting with Steven Spielberg, who obviously is a big deal. And Spielberg says to him, I want it to be, I want the sound of her voice to be like um, Earth to Venus. 
Is you know what I mean? And Alan's like, oh, yeah, I, that, yeah, that sounds really cool. And then Alan says, I leave the room. And I'm like, what the fuck was he talking about? <laughs> what the fuck was that? <laughs> and I really, and he's like, and my entire career is now going to hinge on this because <laughs> I'm working with Steven Spielberg, whether I can deliver this. Uh, so he's like, I went home and I worked on a couple of things. I tried some things out. I was trying these different voice effects and wearing things, delays, blah, blah, blah. He's like, and just like nothing was really working. Um, and I, don't, I can't recall up whether he said that he played stuff for Steven or not. But he's like, after like working on the working on this and not getting it, he says one day he's uh, he's driving in his car and he's listening to the radio and a whole lot of love comes on the radio by Led Zeppelin, and there's that like that weird kind of like avant garde breakdown in the middle of that where uh, uh, Robert Plant, yeah, 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 and and he hears he hears like that. And what's and he's like, and what's happening in that is like there's a reverse echo and like Robert Plant's voice, where it start like the voice instead of like an echo is like you hear it present and then you hear it trail off. It's like the sound of it is like it starts far away and then it and then it becomes present. And he's like, well, it's almost like there's a there's almost like there's a gate on it, like you know where it's like it's it's like opening right. You know what I mean? It's like it's like yeah. you know it's like a it's like a gate on the the vo- the the um the actual audio. You know, it's yeah. almost letting it escape and shutting quickly. And like so he saying. says yeah. that, and he says that's it. And so he goes back to the house and he comes up with this effect where it's like you hear the voice in the distance as it's coming to you, and then by the time she's done talking, it's reached you. And uh, yeah. so that's how that effect came. But uh, that ties into. That's very Again. important too, because like I said, it, it's it's the majority of the movie. I didn't realize how she doesn't have a lot of screen time. Yeah, you know she's the you know and and the the performance is her talking in this world like that. So it's very eerie. It's very has to it hinges that has to work and sell it. You know the audience has to believe that for the movie to proceed. But this again, who knows? I mean, there's a lot of. I think you have to come up with your own idea of what you think is because. Clearly, Hooper says he directed. I mean, he edited, but maybe he did like the first. He did his first. He did his cut, and then he walked away. Who knows? I we don't know what happened. I know that on like um, Invaders from Mars, the remake that he did, uh, Chris Young says that he didn't really. He wasn't really involved in post production on that movie either, because Chris Young did music for that movie, and he said Hooper really wasn't around for post production. Uh, so, again. We leave it to you. And look at, and look at the era too. Spielberg, all those guys who are the hot stuff. Like you know, it all culminates in uh, the Vic Morrow death. All these directors thought they were unstoppable. You know, people going to the Philippines to shoot Apocalypse Now, or down to South America to shoot Sorcerer, or freaking, you know, uh, what's his face is blowing real using real dynamite. I think a, a stuntman was killed in that movie, The Stuntman. So like crazy shits happening on these sets, and these things are so maybe part of that those years you know this is and and since this is so muddled we don't know this era because spielberg doesn't like to talk about this it could be very well that he he directed it and because then they you never hear they never talk again it's like okay they they there was a good experience nice to know you i'll see you later it was almost like it was like a contract player he was brought in to be the the face of it all i, toby I tend to i tend to and then that, that hooper deserves way more credit than clearly yeah. without a doubt uh, Spielberg is a very 
uh, powerful creative force on the movie. No doubt. There are shots when you when we watched it tonight where I like you know, there are shots in the movie where I was like, oh, that's like a Spielberg shot. Like, Cooper wouldn't Blake have shot Blake hit me with his elbow going, nah, that's a Spielberg shot right there. You know, there's just things that are very Spielberg and not Hooper. Um, but that could be because he storyboarded and because he was on set. Uh, clearly, I think for, you know, modern cinema, Spielberg, in my opinion, clearly had a very powerful creative voice on the movie and was probably much more on hand, uh, hands-on than... Most producers probably are, but I think uh, Hooper was the director, from what I've heard. And whether that translates to post production or not, I don't know. Um, I, I think it's also that the publicity of the film too—they're emphasizing Spielberg more over Hooper. They're going off; of, they're riding Spielberg's back. So I think that adds to a lot of it too. And then the heaviness of Hooper's coming from a real graphic horror. Yeah, you know, but that you, you, you know the, that happens now. I mean, with publicity. I mean, certainly from the producers that brought you Get Out. You know, even yeah. though because <laughs> Blumhouse sure. produ- was the producers. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Uh, they, so that happens. That happens a lot. Sure. Um, I don't know anything else you want to say about this before we just. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on it because it's getting late. But uh, we should at least touch um, on a little th- bit of the curse. Yeah, uh, I think also uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't bring up the the clown, how freaky that was in the movie for kids. That's a big fear also that the writers had. <clears throat> Excuse me. About, um, you know, that's uh, a fear everyone had as a kid is fear of clowns. And that was certainly, I remember this movie was the other thing. People remembered me as a kid was that sure. the clown in this freaking movie is freaky. And that let it, I think, opened all these clown different movies. You know, or, or the the idea of a clown being freaky as a doll or whatever. So I thought that was absolutely horrifying in the movie. Uh, and then all, I love all the bits of them going through. I love the idea of the portal. You know, that's really cool. Them yeah. having to go into the closet with the rope and then throw the well, rope and all that. Well, that's certainly a unique, that's one of the things that we were talking about earlier where this, you know, four hours ago <clears> when we started this conversation, <laughs> like one of those things where I was saying like horror movie, uh, uh, supernatural haunted house style horror movies fell very quickly into, into a convention um, but not only was Poltergeist before a lot of this, those conventions were uh, started, it also managed to, by touching on like the realm of the of fantasy within this supernatural horror movie, it ends up kind of standing on its own with some very unique elements that have never really been duplicated since. And the portal is like the big one of those. You know, it's such an awesome this idea of like the the tennis balls because. This whole time, you know, in addition to, you know, Joe Beth Williams and Craig T. Nelson and the way the script kind of uh, anchors this movie in some kind of reality, bringing in the scientific examination of it is another thing that grounds this movie in reality. Um, You know, later we get the Conjuring movies with the real life cases of the Warrens and how they were paranormal investigators and they would go and investigate. But they were coming from a very spiritual way of investigation whereas poltergeist and i mean and those were real people dion's mom saw them do a lecture <laughs> that's right in college my mom went and saw them yeah she was in that the beginning of the conjuring remember when they're in that coral hall in connecticut uh, <clears throat> but in poltergeist they're coming at it very scientifically and you get a little bit of the skepticism of the two guys in the movie but just a scratch on the surface of what the where what they're like in the novelization or um 
James Karen's character is like, uh, you know, like, well, that could be this. That sound could become there could be a transmitter somewhere else in the house, and it's yeah. very like very minimal touched on the skepticism of the those two guys in the movie. But, and why uh, the hell is that guy wearing head wearing headphones? I put that in my notes. Like you're. You're sitting there watching for EVPs or whatever, and he's listening to like music. He's like, you know, he's like, listen, I don't know, I forget who he's listening to, but it's like, put take your headphones off, man. I mean, you could be well, missing shit. I guess you, know? you have to imagine that they've been sitting there for like eight <laughs> hours at this point. And then the other guy is going to go make a steak. It's like, it's like, how <laughs> loud are you going to be? An unwrapped steak. He doesn't even throw it on the counter. <laughs> I don't even know if it's on a plate in the refrigerator. It's yeah, just, uh, he's taking the pan out. He's slapping the pan on the thing. He's like, he's like, he's he takes a piece of. It's like so rude. It's like like the other scene when the construction workers, the one guy's got the window open. He's tasting their sauce. He's eating, drinking the coffee, and then it's just laughed off. How is it, Bill? Oh, it's good, Mrs. Uh, you know, uh, Freeling. <laughs> you know, so it's just funny later. And then Hooper also talks about here. Hooper! Hooper drives the boat, Chief. Um, that's Sean Connery. <laughs> Sean Connery as Quinn. Hooper drives the boat, Chief. Um, that they did a nastier steak. And yeah. the effects people said they took a little longer, but then Steven vetoed it. And that they were the effects people know that's how the business is, but they were just a little annoyed that if they had known that earlier, they had to go to Steven first because they had spent a little more than they needed to on this thing that ended up being vetoed by Steven. So yeah. they realized after that that they had to go to Steven for all the uh, decisions because if they just go to Hooper, that. Well, know, I said they had to go to Steven as well as Hooper, not just yeah. Hooper. Uh, Hooper. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's I think, basically, you know, we could probably get into the minutia of stuff, but, you know, we've already spent a lot of time here. Yeah. I love the chair effect. I mean, evidently, they did that practically, and I love, as a kid, I always loved that was the same shot. They pan away, and they pan back, and the chairs are stacked. That's All this great stuff is very fun, and, you know, and then the ending when they fall in the pool, to this day, I'm still scared about holes in the ground because, <laughs> yeah. you know, stuff's going to come up, and that kind of, I guess, leads to, oh, you know, one thing, last year, we did the Volta Horror and that was a movie, and in one of the movies, that was an anthology movie, and in one of the movie s- sequences, there was a guy with the rope. He had the rope trick where you put the Indian, the old Indian rope trick up where he climbs up the rope, yeah. and I got a lot of that in this movie with you have the, the rope leading to nowhere, you know, when they were holding it, and it's like that going to a different world. That's very freaky to me, going to a different, like leading up, and you don't know what's above there, that thing. That's very, very frightening to me. And, you know, this movie's accredited with a lot of, like, the first EVPs and stuff, but people forget that Changeling came out about two years before, and Changeling had a lot of that we discussed that, that you see end up seeing in The Sixth Sense and a lot of those other movies. Uh, and then the same summer, The Thing comes out, right? Uh, June 25th, 1982. Yeah. And that movie bombs because uh, you look at what's in the theaters. People are all obsessed about Poltergeist and E.T. So... Uh, there's a little context there. Summer of '82, uh, Carpenter's movie kind of bombs. So um, uh, I think that's really it, right? I mean, for just uh, you know, I don't. The sad thing is, I guess if we segue to the curse, I don't feel like the uh, older sister uh, Dominique Dunn's character is utilized all that much. You yeah, know, I feel like just you like could have slut her out of. <laughs> Yeah, and it's and everyone loves that. Like they 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 reinforce that. The very end of the movie, when she gets out of the boyfriend's car, you see she's got a hickey on her neck. You know, in the novelization, when the mom's making the room up after everything's happened, she finds a Playgirl magazine, and the mom like looks at it, 
and then puts it away too, you know, after they have that little earthquake thing happen. Yeah. Uh, so you're right. It's like, you know, she kind of comes off just like as really mean. And, and in the, the, I think it's, I, you know, the mom's 32 and the daughter's 16. So they imply, well, that means that the mother had her when she was 16. And I think that they say that, no, she's a stepdaughter, which means Leslie, uh, Greg T. Nelson had the, the child, I think, with somebody else. And may, maybe Greg T. Nelson's even a little older than Joe Beth Williams by maybe, I don't know, a couple years. Yeah. But that she's a stepdaughter. Hmm. So, it's, so the relationship is interesting there because, like I said, in the movie, she's much more involved in the book. But in the movie, she's very peripheral. You can even cut her out. Yeah. You know, she just gives like, oh, that's weird or ill or, you know. And, and that's kind of sad because of what ends up happening. She ends up uh, being murdered like... This movie was released in the summertime, and then it's re-released around the Halloween season in 1982, and then she's murdered like within days of the re-release. Yeah. She's strangled in her driveway by um, her boyfriend, and then she dies a couple days later in the hospital because she's declared brain dead. Um, so that's really sad. Um, what's her name? Um, Dominique Dunn. Yeah, Dominique Dunn. Uh, and her her boyfriend whoever he is he goes to jail for manslaughter or whatever but only for like two so, years two and a half years yeah yeah and then and i don't understand that me I don't, I don't know and it, there was always a, very similar to me and there yeah, was always a rumor that like that's why griffin don her her older brother disappeared from the business for so long because there was always this story that like after the the boyfriend got released like griffin dunn and his mom like then devoted her their lives to like you know, picketing outside the guy's, guy's restaurant when he was working in restaurants, like really kind of like ruining this guy's life to try to make amends for the fact that they killed uh, Dominique Dunn. Uh, I don't think the curse is worth getting like a whole lot into just because there's a lot of, it's been talked about a lot on other places. There's a sure. there's, there's a, a show on Shudder called Cursed Films that has a really good episode about it. Um, but the gist of it is that... Uh, this is one of those films that's thought to be cursed and, and the urban legend has come about because real skeletons were used in the pool scene. Which Joe Beth Williams says she didn't know about at the time she's in the water. But that wasn't such an uncommon thing, as yeah, horrifying as it sounds. Totally common. Because <laughs> Creepshow, yeah. Creepshow used a real skeleton. I think Ghost Story used a real skeleton. Um, House on Haunted Hill, so, the original one. Uh, Frankenstein. The original Frankenstein. Yeah. I think Funhouse, which is Toby Hooper's movie before this, uh, basically getting real skeletons from like medical supply houses was cheaper than making skeletons. Yeah, because they have to make rubber casts and all that kind of stuff. So I'm, I assume now that they maybe they've made one mold and then they can make their own nowadays. I don't think that's still the practice, but they say because they use these real skeletons in the sequence, this touched off. This yeah. this this opened up this curse. I mean, the daughter's death too, she, when she was strangled, is very much reminiscent to me of around the same time. Uh, Dorothy Stratton, I think her name is the the Playboy centerfold that was um, Bakdanovich's girlfriend. Remember, there was this thing with yeah yeah uh, you know she was a Playboy model. She was murdered by her boyfriend in 1980, but the time the girl was leaving, the boyfriend was with Bakdanovich, but was also with um, what's his face from Playboy, Hugh Hefner. So Bakdanovich blames Hugh Hefner for this girl's death. But she was killed by her boyfriend who was, you know, the girl was rising in fame and she was leaving kind of the boyfriend now to go do bigger. And the boyfriend didn't, was like, hey, I'm still, <laughs> you know, and then it ended up he was a nut and he ends up killing her. So it's very reminiscent. So this poor girl, Dominique Dunn, gets killed. And like you said, 
It's like she, he only gets a couple years. Well, there's and, there's uh, things like uh, supposedly the mechanism of the clown when the character of Robbie's being strangled malfunctions and that kid starts getting really like choked out. Uh, like we're talking about, Dominic. and no one knows because he's didn't he say something? He's like, I can't breathe. And they're like, good, he's improving. Do it. But it's very much of that era, you know. It's like you see that shit. Like with I said, like they killed Vic Morrow was killed. It's like they they it was just that was the business back then. Yeah, you know because there's a scene they say with Carol Ann when they're sucking her into the th- she actually freaked out and started crying and screaming and they had to call cut and Spielberg had to grab her put her in his arms and don't worry we'll never do that again to you but it's like in that scene when they when she's ripping off the bedpost it looks real you know yeah, yeah. it looks like they're really dragging her into that you know that looks frightening so uh, they're like fuck it put it it's like it's like the the uh, William freaking shit like you know run it on high <laughs> <laughs> and just bowl the kid into the fan with um, uh, the sequel with the second movie Julian Beck who played. Uh, Reverend Kane, the guy the I was talking about earlier, he died of cancer. Um, Which I think he was diagnosed while he was filming it, and that's the reason he's gone. You know, He doesn't come back for the third movie because he's dead. Will Sampson, who's also in the second movie, he dies, I believe, of cancer. Well, he, he ended up, there's this problem on the set of Poltergeist 2 with shit's falling and they're doing stuff, and then he says that the skeletons, they're using real skeletons again, and he says the skeletons are unhappy. So, as you said, you can get into this in the other places that did it, but he ended up doing an exorcism on set one night. And then after that, everything was fine. But then, like you said, he's, Will Sampson's was a ra- real Native American shaman in a bunch of different tribes. And we, we know him also from um, uh, One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest. He's the tall Native American in One Flew of yeah. the Cuckoo's Nest. But he ended up dying, I think, right before the movie came out, right? Or I right around so, the movie? Yeah. At like or right fifty three or something, like really young. Uh, yeah, he had another. He had complications from a lung or heart transplant. Um, so he ends up passing away. And then by the end of the by the third movie, well, you I will have, say uh, uh, about Julian Beck though is like he's a fascinating guy. The guy, the actor who plays the evil Reverend Kane in the second movie. So if you're what interested in just learning about like he he and his wife founded like this really famous uh, legendary like avant garde theater. Uh, for plays and stuff, and so he's a he's a really interesting guy. So he's if you're interested in that kind of thing, the history of theater and whatnot. Like if you go to like you know drama school and acting school, like you learn about Julian Beck and the theater sure. that he started as part of like the- theatrical history. So uh, he's worth looking into. And then and of he's co- so freaky in that movie. <laughs> I mean, he's so scary. Yeah. He's a great villain, great bad guy. You know, so much so that Blake and I admitted that we haven't gone back and revisited that. <laughs> and that's, how, that's really part of it. It's like I was yeah, so it freaked is. out it's, by he's it. Fra- Let me in. God is in his holy temple. And then the thing I re- brought up before is the reason it's so good is they tie that movie to this first one. And since everybody, for the most part, comes back, yeah. it's completely tied that the poltergeist is following them or because it's angered. Because they're the descendants that are living under the in caves. It's, it's all crazy. And, uh, of course, Dion was about to get into the unfortunate passing of Heather O'Rourke, who played Carol Ann. She died at, like, 11, I think, or 9 or something. She was really young. Um, she was sadly misdiagnosed with Crohn's disease, which is basically an inflammatory disease of the lower intestine, uh, very uh, similar to colitis and ulcerative colitis. Yeah. Uh, and so one of the ways that you treat that is by putting uh, the person on steroids, and that's why she has a kind of like these chipmunk cheeks, full face. Uh, back several years ago, before Jerry Lewis died, when he 
yeah. he got sick and there I was like that period that of time, time when he had yeah. that giant head it was because of because it's a reaction he's they're gaining weight and it's it's uh what do you call that not, not bloating but it's uh kind of a uh inflammatory you yeah know, so kinda. uh unfortunately so she was diagnosed so they were treating her for something she didn't have it turned out she had like a uh, birth defect in her intestines uh, called uh, congenital stenosis. And uh, I guess what happened was there was like a pocket or something inside of her intestines that was just uh, filling with excrement and uh, bile t- and bile and, and, yeah. t- and then eventually it just kind of ruptured and uh, she went into septic shock and uh, she passed away uh, at a very Before young age. the third movie came out. She, and it, she passed away before three came out. Yeah, and unfortunately, the studio didn't like the ending of the movie, so they had to go back and reshoot the ending uh, with somebody else, right? With with a, with a double, with a double, and the director. I think that's kind of freaky looking, right? Because I think you could see it's a double in certain shots, so it looks like a like a small person, yeah, or something. If I remember, it's and also looking. like nobody <laughs> that made the movie even wanted the movie to come out. The director said, like, I don't want to do the new ending. I don't. I don't even want you to release it. Like, this is not like a good testament to her memory. Uh, so he, he like reluctantly did it, but like nobody on the movie did promotion for the movie, apparently allegedly uh, because they would just, they didn't want that movie to get released. Um, but uh, so that, I mean, that's kind of where the, the that's, those are the skimming the surface of, of the curse. And then there's, the guys. there's also one more. There's the gentleman. I think it's the African-American gentleman who's in the first one who is uh, there's two people. There's the African-American gentleman who's one of the researchers. I think he's the actor he was on. Do you remember if this happened in the mid nineties, that, that flight, it, if anybody ever flies into LaGuardia, it's right on the bay. It's very scary because it looks like you're landing in the water, but you land on the runway. And one night uh, in the mid nineties, uh, it was like a, it was snowing and the plane skidded off the runway into the water and it's half hanging there at night and it was very freaky and I got a lot of attention and it made me not want to fly but he was on that plane and evidently like a lot of people died not everybody you know half the crew half the people survived but some people did die so he was involved in that and then one of the actors who played Pugsley who I think was one of the people at the football at the beginning he ended up being murdered by some felon axe murdered him in Texas a couple years ago so he was murdered viciously too so um that was very crazy, uh, and I feel like there's one more other really freaky thing with a with a cameraman or something was you know almost murdered or something. So, and then you can even take this to the idea of like you know Vic Morrow being you know it's like it's like all this it was it was a tumultuous time yeah. back then you know, but this has certainly helped the the I mean Jesus the the poor Dominique Dunn comes is is murdered while this movie's out in the theaters and then. Uh, Poltergeist Two, you know the 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 what's his face dies before the movie comes out. Uh, uh, what's his name dies after the movie comes out, and then Carol Ann, uh, um, what's her name, uh, O'Rourke dies before the third one comes out. So it's like all this publicity mixing in, you know, it's 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 it, it's weird. So anyway, that's um, one more. <laughs> Uh, Jerry Goldsmith, his score, right? Yeah. Uh, Nice score. Uh, It seems to me like it wants to be a John Williams. It's like, you know, it's this beautiful, lush, you know, but I think he does a really good job. Well, Jerry Jerry Goldsmith, Goldsmith, as we've talked about before, like if you were going to do the Mount Rushmore of of Hollywood film music composers, you'd have John Williams, and right next to him would be Jerry Goldsmith. In fact, Amongst composers, who, uh, as Dion knows, I know quite a few of them now, 
Jerry Goldsmith is the guy. I mean, like even more than John Williams to them. Like Jerry Goldsmith is the genius uh, of film scoring. Um, And he did everything from Planet of the Apes. He did the original Planet of the Apes to this, to Gremlins. Uh, You know, much more, uh, you know, accepted big Hollywood Oscar-y type movies uh, as well. Uh, Jerry Goldsmith was was one of the geniuses of film scoring, and I love the score to this. Um, yeah, not, not just the scary, it's very stuff, iconic. Not just the scary stuff, but the family themes and, uh, and beautiful stuff. I mean, Jerry Goldsmith was yeah. is one of the greats. Yeah, I mean, and then this was nominated for best sound effects editing, best visual effects editing, best score, and it then it didn't win any nominations because it lost out to ET because ET was winning everything for that year, and then but it did win a Saturn Award for best uh, horror film, best makeup, best supporting actress, which went to Zelda, and then the British Film Academy won for best visual effects. It won, so uh, yeah, it it you know it it like we said it was what the number one or number two horror movie for 1982 and then it was like the ninth highest grossing movie of that year as well so it was a blockbuster and that's the reason why you see that they put a second one out quickly and then they put a third one out um after that as well and then uh sam raimi and robert tapert uh of of evil dead fame evil dead came up quite a bit Mm, yeah yeah. on this podcast they produced the uh, remake in 2015 starring sam rock i don't remember if i saw that I would have seen it just because it's Sam Rockwell. I love Sam Rockwell. Yeah. I definitely uh, didn't see but, it, but I remember when it came out. And apparently another remake is in the works. I saw that too. Yeah. It, it, uh, just Jesus. Um, yeah, but I remember that came and went. Like they remade the, they redid Amityville Horror with Ryan Reynolds. You know, that got a little more fanfare, came and went. But then this movie, I felt like it was, I heard it was coming out in 2015. And then, I, then it was already on DVD. And I was like, oh, it's out. It, it came out already? Yeah. And, you know, all, and all I know about it is the face, the yeah, clown face. All my pub- I was going to say, all the, to my recollection, all like the publicity was about the clown. Yeah, because that was the angle of like an Annabelle kind of a thing. So I don't remember. It'd be interesting now watching that to see what the, do they have a Zelda Rubenstein in it? Do they connect it to the uh, to the the Conjuring worlds or you know how do they? I guess Spielberg had to be a part of that in Hooper, right? Or you know. Um, uh, it is interesting that what is it Universal, right? I think it was that did um, that no was it MGM? I'm sorry, MGM did this movie. Yeah, they did also. The MGM was the owners of the Twilight Zone, so if there was a connection with the old um, uh, what's his Matheson script, it didn't matter because it was all under the same house. Yeah, maybe. So they, you can't really copper even if it was. It's kind of like Disney doing um the 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 toy, the what is that called the Christmas toy. In the 80s with Jim Henson, and a couple of years later, to do the identical thing called Toy Story, which is, uh, you know, Pixar. And then it's, uh, it's all under the same house. We yeah. can't, you know, well, if they own the rights to it, they can do whatever they yeah. want. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> even so much so that the people involved they don't even know. They're like, oh, okay. So uh, I think it's, you know, I do agree with you. You know, I do think this is such an iconic movie. It was such a huge part of our childhood. But I do think it's one of these movies either people forget or take for granted. And then the reason I brought up the questions of the skepticism about the movie and the questions is just because uh, the reality of today with audiences and people and all that stuff, I just don't know how it would be taken. So I wonder if people do forget about they only want to go see The Shining or they only want to go see... Texas Chainsaw Massacre or The Exorcist, and this is something that just falls through the cracks. It's on a list, but then people forget about it. Well, I mean, obviously there's film lovers of today, but I think ultimately uh, younger people, even like millennials, the younger 
half of millennials and then whatever is coming up after millennials. I think they just have a different relationship with film, generally speaking, than we did. Uh, I just think there's just like there's more options than we had. We always talk about how like we were kind of a captive audience when it came to television and also we were also the benefactors of the video store. Uh, so I just think people yeah, have think a different, gone. Yeah. people have a different relationship with it. Like just recently I was watching, um, I watch, uh, what's his name? Seth, uh, on, uh, Seth McFarlane. No, the guy who's got the, the show after, uh, Jimmy Fallon, the late night Myers, Seth Myers. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. he, and he sometimes does this segment cause he has a, uh, a writer on his staff. Who's this girl who's like 25. And so he does, they sometimes do this segment where he shows her things and then asks her if she knows what it is. And uh, just recently they did one and they showed her a picture of Ivan Drago from Rocky Ford. They're like, do you know who this is? And she had no idea. And he's like, well, have you seen Rocky? And she's like, no, but I know what Rocky is. <laughs> like she yeah. had never seen any of the Rocky movies. <laughs> yeah. And even sad. though the Creed movies are kind of a big deal now, she, like I just think younger people have a different relationship with cinema than we did. So. Well, the, the, I think it's, uh, you know, it's a realization that I've been coming to in the past couple of months and it's nothing to get into now, but it's quite disheartening personally for myself because I think that how we used to know cinema is dead and it's now evolving into something else. And that's the example you're saying here where I feel like there's so much gluttony on the market of content. You know, I was looking the other night to see if Poltergeist 2 was on so I can rent it and I had to pay for it, but I was looking to see if I can find it free anywhere. So I was looking around on all my streaming options and there's these movies that you put, you put poltergeist in and half a dozen movies come up that I've never heard of and probably will never hear of. And I just find that so sad that these movies are just coming out and I'm like, what the hell is this? And it's like, you know, and then this came out 10 years ago. I'm like, what the hell? So it's like all this, there's just so much out there. It's just kind of like there's, it's, there's an oversaturation and I don't know how, you know, the average person now kind of navigates through all that. And how do you expect to make anything that's going to be, you know, time tested or, or relevant or, or, or memorable anymore? Because there's just so much out there comes and goes, you know, there's yeah. no point to life anymore. Ah, it's all screw gone. It. Screw it all. So it's just, what the hell? We, we, we came into this graduating film school, want to do movies. And it's like, well, what's the point now? It's like, what the hell are you going to be able to do? You can make a movie. You know, you know, I'm going to see it. Your mom's going to see it. And that's it. You know, it's like, so I don't know. Yeah. So I think it's, it's, it's going to be interesting. We might've brought that up last podcast, but it's going to be interesting in 50 years when we're elderly, what everything's going to look like. And we're going to be the people saying, I remember back when it, you'd see the movies in the theaters and yeah, you know, people used to listen at the theater and I mean, they wanted to hear, we laughed together and yeah. we cried we, together. We grew up with like, you know, when I was when I was a kid, the movie was a nickel, or you know, when you got yeah. seats, you had your own seat yeah. number and all that. Matt, you're right. We're, we're old with an usher. Like, when we grow up, when we get old, it's going to be like, yeah, we're going to be like, oh, we used to go someplace to watch a movie. Yeah, well, we'd go <laughs> and sit together with strangers and watch the movie, and then we'd all laugh together and we'd be respectful of each other, and and we knew who the actors were in the movie, you know, and and it was iconic. So, 
Uh, it's like these things now. You see these commercials that come up. You, you, you know, you're, you're watching something on YouTube, right? And then every four minutes or every two minutes, something comes up a commercial, and it's all these people our age doing these commercials. Like I learned the secret, and they're like walking through their house. Have you ever not been able to poop? Well, I wasn't able to poop either, but then I learned the secret, and I'm going to show you if yeah. you keep watching this video past the skip ad. You know, and it's like <laughs> all these entrepreneurs that are all our age that are yeah. all over it. So it's like, oh my god, just this, this too much. <laughs> you know, it's too many people. So, anyway, um, so Halloween's upon us. This is our Halloween movie. Like we said before, four hours ago, we have the Fog available for the Patreon people. John Carpenter's The Fog. That's a fun cast, and uh, we'll have another one coming out soon that'll be only exclusive to Patreon as well. Uh, we'd like to again thank our role. Well, call we don't of, know. Uh, <laughs> we don't know. We don't know what Patreon has in store because we the pl- they were, the plan is also to do like non regular episodes there so uh our first exclusive half happens to be like a proper saturday movie sleepover episode but um we might do like things like sidecasts and and other things exclusive to well that. that's what i meant there'll be content available either movie podcasts or you know stuff showing up of us doing sidecasts or specials or whatever interview who knows so that's exciting for the people who want to have that exclusive access baby you know you're not only a member you're part of the club um and then, uh, what do you got going on? Just uh, in the middle of trying to deal with getting the cover done uh, for score to, the new Score to Death book. I'm not very happy with it at the moment, but we'll see what happens. <laughs> I don't know and how you much. You just did a panel too, right? I did a uh, Score to Death panel for the Salem Horror Fest. I guess if you're listening nice. to this in October, that will still be up on demand uh, at the Salem Horror Fest. I don't. You know, you have to pay for it, but uh, you know they have a lot of other really great content, uh, other panels, Sweet. movies, a lot of Joe Dante related stuff because he got some kind of award. So there's a lot of uh, cool watch party things. So uh, yeah, there's Squirt to Death, an hour and a half Squirt to Death panel with myself, uh, the composers uh, Richard Band, uh, Joseph Bashara, uh, nice. Holly Amber Church, Charlie Clauser, and Harry Manfredini. So we talk about the uh, creation and use of music and horror movies and uh you know i'm hoping i'm not really doing square to death the podcast much anymore but uh you know i have an interview that i've been chipping away at in editing so there will be an episode of that at some point you're not happy with the book cover (laughs) yeah i just wish they included me early on because i would have in a very spielbergian fashion uh vetoed the (laughs) the road they took uh but now i think it's too late and so now i have to kind of just deal with what they present me but uh, that's all i'm disappointed because that's all like happened yesterday this is all like Um. i just saw it for the first time (laughs) maybe a little grow on me but uh got scored to death my the original scored to death book is available on amazon and uh you can buy it from me uh directly at scoredtodeath.com and uh, Score to Death 2, more conversations with horror's greatest, some of Horror's Greatest Composers uh, still should be out for Christmas. So it might be a good Christmas gift for nice. anybody interested. And of Certainly course, the season of it. We have uh, Patreon. Uh, we have a Teespring uh, t-shirt merchandise store, if anybody's interested in that kind of stuff. And of course, Dion has been hard at work on his own things. Well, we got the exclusive shirt for Halloween too. The 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 the, 
the limited offer shirt. Uh, yeah, me, I've got more, uh, let's see, Blood in the Streets. You can get that. That's my book. That's available on Amazon in paperback, ebook, and audiobook. Um, check that out if you like thrillers, historical fiction, uh, 70s detective movies or cop movies. Um, I've also got uh, my new book coming out uh, maybe spring of next year called Moore's P.I., uh, that's going to be a fun book. I'll tell you more about that as we get along, but that's more of like last week's podcast, a private detective, uh, Indiana Jones meets Chinatown, kind of a fun movie or movie. It was a movie book, but it's a book now. Uh, and then I've got, uh, a film coming out at the end of the year, probably after Thanksgiving called stand on it. Uh, John Schneider, the man, the myth, the legend he wrote, directed, starred in produced. It's an homage to Smokey and the bandit. Uh, that'll be very, it's very fun. I'm in that as, uh, the sheriff's son, the idiot son in that movie. Uh, they, he just put out a music video called my name is Roy, a fabulous, uh, like trucking kind of song in the spirit of like devil went down to Georgia and they have a music video and I'm in the music video. So that's fun. So you can check that out on YouTube. Uh, John Schneider, my name is Roy, and that is for the stand on it movie coming out, uh, soon. So those are my things. Uh, and we'll be back very soon with, um, other things soon enough. And, uh, you can get us on Facebook, Instagram, uh, we're working on YouTube, um, uh, Twitter. Uh, you can message us. We have our own site. You can talk to us, interact with us, like us, share our stuff, suggest stuff, get back to us about stuff. Give us comments, concerns, leave us YouTube or, uh, reviews for the podcast on iTunes and all those other places. Uh, you can get the podcast where you get your podcasts from. And, uh, you know, we'll be back very soon. So we hope you have a very good, fun, safe Halloween season out there. And uh, we'll be seeing you very shortly. Later. Later.